The New Beverly presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. But this episode is actually uh, sponsored in part by our Patreons. Uh, everybody that has been supporting us over there on Patreon, patreon.com slash purecinemapod. This episode is dedicated to you guys. Yeah, we decided instead of cutting into our themed topic episodes every month, we would do some of these best of the year lists, or in this case, a best of the decade list. We wanted to, you know, say thank you to everyone who listens, but uh, give some uh, throwback to our patrons who uh, are, you know, super supportive, have been now supporting for a good couple years. And so we are going to dive into our uh, top 10, which is really our uh, 10 films because lists of the decade, yeah. uh, because we don't really feel comfortable saying best. We're not film critics. We don't know about ranking movies per se, but we do have gut instincts. <laughs> so we do have movies we love. I just hate that word best because I yeah. think I feel like favorite is always more specific and more direct about the way that I feel about this stuff, because best sounds like like you say, like a critic, it's like saying, you know, this is the thing. This well, it is becomes the one. an objective. Uh, that's exactly. Some, which that's is impossible. Is. And, and then sometimes you try to make your list, especially with the end of the year lists, you'll find yourself making a list and then going, oh, I need to include that because that's the big movie that year. And I really need to include it, even if you didn't particularly like it. And then you're like, well, but then what's the point of that? Everyone can do that. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's always tough. I think best of the year is harder to do in that way sometimes, whereas best of the decade, or in this case, our favorites of the decade, this I went complete, like an the initial sketch I made of this was complete gut check. Just some of the movies that really stuck with me. A lot of them are more on the cult and genre side, you know, which isn't that surprising. Uh, I haven't got yeah, that much we, horror uh, because we I've already done we, that. <laughs> we could almost call this episode cult movies of the 2010s or something right, like right. that. Right, right. I mean, it probably would end up that for the most part. I mean, just because, you know, the prestige picks are just for me easier to forget. You know, yeah. the films that win Oscars, some, you know, sometimes they're, you know, fantastic and that's that's why they stay with you. But just so often it's a movie that blows you away in the theater or you watch it once and never think about it again because it was like uh, dramatically strong, but not necessarily uh, has that uh, aesthetic or emotional hook. These are all ones that, for the most part, either uh, knocked me over the one time I saw them in the theater, if that's high sort, or have just stayed with me or have recommended them a lot to people. They're not all always heavy rewatches, just because I'm not as big a rewatcher, um, uh, you know, of, of newer films usually. But um, that's kind of, you know, I kind of stayed pretty close to my initial sketch. So it's it's certainly not the the best. I mean, Christ, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, no, that's I'm just not my thing. But mine are actually movies that I have rewatched quite a bit movies that have invited me in whatever way to come back to them again and again to watch by myself then show my son show my daughter whatever and um so yeah that's these are the rewatchables for me for the most part a lot of them from the last decade um so yeah i'm curious uh how this is gonna go we're gonna just kind of this is kind of what we call a hangout episode so we're just gonna yeah it's a little looser um run through this I didn't, uh, yeah, no, about four of mine just looked over the list. About four of them are ones I've watched, you know, more than three or four times. And then some of them are first time watches. And and I'm weird like that. Some of the films that, especially ones that are high on like the aesthetic quality where it's, you know, very visual. Sometimes that's a one watch, but has left a huge imprint on me. And I love that feeling. I, I savor that feeling sometimes. Uh, not wanting to go back to it for a while. Uh, so we'll see. Um, one thing up front I would say is we, you know, we're doing this for the new Bev, but we have an entire episode 
already dedicated to the films of uh, Quentin Tarantino. So we did, we, you know, knew that people would kind of uh, get on our case if our, fil- if our 10 films were uh, just uh, Quentin's films. So we wanted to make sure that we threw a nod to, you can hear the entire episode where we run down all those films. I think we both agreed pretty heavily that maybe the only film from this year's uh, films that might've made this list would have been once upon a time. Yeah. I mean, I'm still ruminating on knives out. I really liked that a mm-hmm. lot. You know, and people will say, well, that, you just had him on the show. So, well, but no, I really like that movie a lot. And I think that could be a favorite over the years. But the, the I don't have anything from 2019 in my list. Yeah. No, the only one, yeah. like you say, could be Once Upon a Time. I just, I think I need a little more time, a little more marination time for movies. So the earliest I have is, is some 2018 films. It would be different if this was also Best Of, because if you're counting down Best Of, I mean, honestly, this year alone, that's why this year is so crazy. I know you haven't seen Parasite yet, but that's I can count almost four films that would make it onto, you know, even trying to be objective about it, like best of a decade type list, which is crazy. Usually you're lucky to have one film a year kind of uh, hit that ceiling. Um, yeah. So it's, so it's a very strong year. But but yeah, no, I'd feel the only film I would personally feel comfortable adding to a best of, like a true best of this year would have been Once Upon a Time, um, just because it's, yeah. it's staying with me so much. And um, But, you know, we thought that would be fair. We, obviously, a big part of the point of this show is to point people to new things that we haven't, you know, discussed as much. So that was the thinking there, just so people understand. Yeah. But let's get into it, man. What's uh, what's your number 10 spot there? My number 10 is a film. Uh, this is one of the ones I've only seen once, but left a real impact. Uh, it's very noirish. It's uh, very Hitchcockian. Actually, one of the most Hitchcockian uh, films I've seen this decade. There's two on my list that would uh, fit that. Um, and that my number 10 is Phoenix, uh, directed by Christian Petzold. Passport. Can I talk to you? She's from the camps. Wir haben sie für tot gehalten. Haben sie Glück gehabt. Deine ganze Familie ist tot. Wo ist Johnny? Ich möchte so aussehen wie früher. Das wird schwer. from 2014. Do you know this one? I know it, but I haven't seen it. So it just recently came to Criterion, which is a good sign. I saw it uh, when it first came out, or a little bit after it. A good friend of mine recommended it to me. A rave. I had seen almost all the films in the last, like, 12 or so years by this director, uh, Christian Petzold. He's a German director. Uh, he made uh, Yella, Barbara, Jericho. I think Barbara is the one that is a Postman Always Rings Twice remake, uh, unless it's Jericho. One of the, oh, no, actually, I think it's Jericho, actually. Um, and I haven't, this year he's getting a lot of attention. He's landing on a lot of top 10 lists with um, a film uh, which is kind of like Mr. Klein. Uh, the Transit is the name of it. Uh, I didn't love it. Uh, a lot of people are putting Transit on the top of the list. It didn't do much for me. And to be honest, almost n- all of them are beautifully filmed, but none of them have ever uh, really stayed with me or gotten under my skin in a sense. And so I was a little reticent with Phoenix. And then when I saw it, I was just utterly floored. This is a uh, it's at the aftermath of World War II. So it's post-World War II Germany. And this woman has survived uh, the concentration camp in Auschwitz, but she's uh, very disfigured. And she was, I think, shot with a bullet into her face. And she suspects that her husband is the person who gave her up. Uh, she, But she doesn't know. Uh, her husband, Johnny, who works at some club in Berlin, he uh, believes she has 100%. She, he knows that she has died 
in the concentration camp. Uh, so she gets out and she gets partial, like a facial reconstruction, like surgery, and then goes to find him. And he mistakes her as somebody who looks a lot like his wife, but isn't his wife. And then she uh, then reveals to her he can't get the inheritance that his wife had left for some signatory reason. So you could help me adopts her as the lover and says you could help me imitate her and get the money. So total Hitchcock setup, and it's freaking awesome. I mean, it's a, it's a really good, really emotional, really beautifully made. Feels like a very big movie the way it's filmed. You know, it's um and uh you know the period details great. Everything's crumbling. It looks a lot like there's a Fassbender film called The Marriage of Maria Brahm, which it reminded me in t- in terms of setting a lot. Um and this is just uh, Nina Haas, the lead actress, is just utterly brilliant she is the star of almost all this director's films uh, yellow barber and jericho um but it's you know it's all about identity it's all about uh you know uh, husband wife uh you know fidelity and treachery and like who can you trust uh and you know i won't go to where it goes exactly but i will say this it this is how my friend sold it to me he said he thought it had maybe one of the most perfect endings he had ever seen in a movie and i was like oh well okay now i gotta see it and i will agree with that it's it's not like it's some big crazy thing it's quite subtle and simple but it's like one of the most like perfectly uh completed movies that i've seen uh so i'd highly recommend people when they when that criterion sale you know rolls around each time and this one you might have heard very little about it deserves to be there that's cool i i had not heard of that film until the criterion blu-ray came out and then i was like oh what is this uh but so your summary is intriguing to me i i know real idea of what that movie was when it was announced so that's very cool yeah i'd say if people have been catching up if anyone saw mr klein which i recommended recently or uh you know somewhere between hitchcock's spy films uh it fits perfectly in between those and it's you know it's really something yeah no that's cool i'm definitely into it i'm gonna check it out did you ever see um, a Tishigahara film that was also put on criterion face of another no but i want to see that one does that have a cover with a guy with a face wrapped in bandages yes so that's one of my all-time favorite, like all-time. That's like, so uh, Woman in the Dunes, he's one of my favorite directors. Yes, actually. yes. Woman in the Dunes. Yes. So this was the follow-up, and there's there's some similarities. Like, because Face of Another is a guy who gets, like, his face gets all messed up in an industrial accent, and he goes, when he gets the reconstructive surgery, he decides the thing he wants to try to do is seduce his own wife, but without <laughs> her knowing it's him, pretending to be a different that's guy. Crazy. And it's, like, such a weird... <laughs> and so there was, there was elements of this where I was like, okay, and then you've got eyes without a face. So there's a, there's a great history I, I do love a good face uh you know um or seconds right you know <laughs> yeah no it made me think of that right away yeah, yeah but i've been wanting to see that one for years um so i i think because you had recommended it at some point but that's good stuff um well my number 10 is much more conventional in fact my whole list is going to be much more conventional if you're going that way ah uh, mine's a real mix don't worry okay uh i'm gonna go frank and weenie uh mm-hmm. to start mm-hmm. sparky is a great dog a great friend. The best dog a kid could have. When you lose someone you love, they never really leave you. He'll always be in your heart. I don't want him in my heart. I want him here with me. The nervous system is just wires and cables. Even after death, the muscles respond to electricity. <laughs> Sorry, boy. 
I can fix that. I didn't even know that was this decade, to be honest. 2012, yeah. Mm. And this one was really seminal for me in that it was one of the early movies that I felt my daughter connecting to. I mean, she connected to a lot of stuff. You know, we took her to the uh, remake Muppet movie as like her first movie in the theater. But I remember taking her to see this one and it was tough because, you know, it's a retelling of the Frankenstein story. It's a remake of Tim Burton's original Disney short that he did. And it, you know, deals a lot with the Frankenstein mythology, the dog I'm um, spoiler alert, the dog dies and he <laughs> brings the dog back. Um, but you know, my daughter was very young and I remember specifically holding her at the edge of the theater. Like she needed to leave. And then we stood, uh, this was towards the end of the movie. I remember we, we stood at the, um, by the exit and I was just holding her. We were watching it and she was watching it and we stayed for the whole movie. But for the good last 15 minutes, I was standing, holding her, watching it. And I was like, oh man, I fucked this up. She, this is this is too much for her. But then it was something that we kept coming back to and that I personally kept coming back to a lot. And I was so moved by it on the level of feeling Tim Burton fully engaged in a way that I hadn't felt Tim Burton fully engaged um, maybe since Ed Wood. I mean, yeah, I think Ed Wood was the last time I felt him engaged in that way. I feel like he's been engaged. You know, Big Eyes, he's definitely engaged. And... Uh, Big Fish, he's engaged in a way, but this is like him doing exactly his thing. You know, it's it's stop motion animation, it's uh, Universal monster movies, and it's incorporating all kinds of monsters because you've got a bunch of kids that end up creating their own monsters, and the monsters end up fighting. So it's kind of a kaiju thing. Uh, but I just think it's a beautiful film and it's black and white. And I think I love it when a director can con a studio into doing a black and white movie because I feel like they, you know, they can't pull it off that much anymore. People are still really allergic to that. And I think it's just a beautiful movie. And I think for all the love that Wes Anderson gets for, and I love these movies too, but like Fantastic Mr. Fox or Isle of Dogs or whatever, uh, I think Frank and Weenie is, should be in that conversation. And I feel like, it was sort of glossed over at the time and people aren't talking about it as much now as I would like. And it really has stuck with me and, and watching it, I can just see, I was actually trying to pull clips from it and I was like, God, this is harder than I thought because so much of it is visual. So much of it is design and just, you know, this Tim Burton getting lost in the minutia of this kind of story and it's just a beautiful thing I think it's a wonderful film yeah no I love that one that's actually one of my favorites of all of his films um, mm-hmm. and again I've seen that one more than most of his other films to be honest yeah it's really it's really solid I think people should go back to it and show their kids if they're ready to deal with dog death is he the animation director or do, is there somebody else like a Henry Selleck on there as well I mean I wouldn't I'm not sure if Selleck was involved in this one but I mean he's fully credited as director mm-hmm. and obviously when you're dealing with stop motion there's a whole team of people that are helping bring it to life. But I just love seeing, like I was watching the behind the scenes on the Blu-ray and just seeing the um, animators and the production design people designing these tiny little sets and these little, you know, just bits that go into those sets. I just think it's, it's beautiful. And he just, he seems to me like a guy who has gotten kind of lost in the studio machine, an artist who's gotten lost in the studio machine and finds himself, you know, sometimes, just showing up to do a movie like Alice in Wonderland, which I think is pretty terrible and pretty boring. Um, But he obviously brings some of his own design sensibility to it. But then I'm just kind of like, what happened, man? 
what happened to the guy, you know? It sometimes so. makes it worse that he that you can see the trace of his hand on some of these big studio ones lately, but then not the kind of core. And it's yeah. always it's a shame because it's like, oh, yes, on the outside, it looks like Tim Burton's Willy Wonka. And on the outside, it looks like his Alice in Wonderland. And it looks like uh, not Planet of the Apes. I had less of that feeling. Um, yeah. There was yeah. one I didn't I didn't love his Planet of the Apes either. But um, what there was one other one recently. But uh, yeah, Dumbo, I still haven't seen. Dumbo. I haven't I, I haven't seen Dumbo it. either. Yeah. Um, but but, you know, when he's hitting his stride, some of the, the films he made, you know, earlier and up to, like we said, Ed Wood, Ed Wood's just total masterpiece. So, yeah, uh, so, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I love this film. Yeah. It's great. Frank and Weenie. Uh, my number nine is one of my favorite indie films of the decade that I, uh, it's probably one of my f- films I most like to recommend to people who don't know, you know, this kind of uh, world as well. Uh, it always gets a great uh, reaction for the most part, unless they're very dog sensitive. Uh, that is Cheap Thrills. Oh, yeah. Hey, Craig, these guys want to buy out the next round, man. I'm Colin. This is my wife, Violet. It's Violet's birthday today, so we thought we'd go out on the town, get a little crazy. Violet and I came up with this idea for an awesome night. What do we have to do? Whichever you fellows does the shot first, gets 50 bucks. Boom. Wait, what? Oh! Meanwhile, wait, what? (laughs) I'll give you $200, whoever touches that stripper, with a slap. Hey, you the one hit one of our girls? No, I swear to God. 500 bucks if you hit him first. You will never forget this night. One, two, three. All right. (laughs) Even if you never see us again, you will never forget us. I think that's awesome. Just one of my favorite movies. I like honestly, anytime I show it to a group of people, it's so funny. The the humor's so dark. Uh, this is directed by Evan Katz, uh, who I know a little bit, but not that well. It's from twenty thirteen. I, I know the producer Travis Stevens pretty well. One of the writers, Trent Hogg, I know him well. Um, and obviously one of our past guests. I think this is the only movie with a past guest in it, which is one of my honestly, if we're ranking our favorite ten performances of the decade, I'm not joking when I say that Pat Healy would make my list. Uh, him, Ethan Embry, Sarah Paxton from the innkeepers and david keckner uh you know this is just a wild film it's uh basically very much about the uh you know one percent versus the 99 you've got a guy who can't he's about to have he's just had a baby he's about to let go of his job he's about to get evicted you know his wife's not happy with him he goes to a bar to sink his you know last dollar into a drink runs into an old friend who's a bit of a thug and they're they're kind of in a strained relationship uh and similar kind of desperation kind of very much about the economy at the time and uh, David Koechner, you know, the, who's largely known as a comedian, he's from Krampus. He's, you know, quite a big personality. He's, you know, t- taking his young, much younger girlfriend out on, or wife on the town, and he's just dropping money like crazy. And you know, he kind of says to one of them, "I'll give you fifty bucks if you slap that waitress's ass." You know, and that kind of kicks off this very. It's also deeply unpolitically correct, and that's there's something very refreshing about that when a film completely commits to that especially in this era um you know especially if it's if it's still in good taste in a sense uh and then it just becomes the two of them are uh, locked in this uh sick game they go back to the couple's house and the guy's like well it's, it's her birthday let's uh let's put on a show for her and these increasing challenges that start from uh simple things uh like you know go take a <laughs> could take a dump and the neighbor's house which is you know it feels very you know kind of scary at the time to some crazy crazy things which i think would be totally ruined if i let you know because the build-up of it is is a big part of it and it's not what's so so good about the movie is it's not just about the crazy 
crazy things they're getting them to do because that could be just like a saw type movie right it's the it's that it's also a study of their relationship these two old friends and desperation how far would you push these boundaries between uh two people for money when you're in a desperate place and it goes to somewhere very dark and i think pat healy is just like he's one of those actors i've seen him had seen him in quite a few things but i'd never seen him as a lead i mean great world of sound i guess but i'd never seen him as a lead in something where he got to do this much and i was like after this i was like a total convert i was like okay I need to see this guy, you know, do more stuff uh, because it's just got such a good through line. Yeah, I can't recommend yeah. Cheap Thrills enough. I love it. No, I'm with you 100%. This is a great movie. I think I've shown it to my son, but uh, it's one that I've definitely put on. I've made little letterbox lists of movies that I'm like, oh, this is stuff he could show his friends that I think, you know, young people would get into. And yeah, I, Pat isn't given enough opportunities to be a lead and he is you know a great actor and always brings it whenever he's given a you know supporting role to play but yeah i love seeing him in a prominent place in such a good movie it's really great this is an excellent choice this is one that had slipped out of my head but is easily in the conversation for me uh for this kind of list so you know that's perfect i have a few that where it's like i've shown it to a big groups of people or like a class uh and they kind of gauge how well it plays and you realize yeah this is a real uh, and usually it's a film that did not play to a big crowd except for like a maybe a south by you know it never got a theatrical in that sense and then you realize man what a bummer because some of them are crowd films um, oh yeah I did not see it in the theater, unfortunately. I don't and know seeing, if it was a theater film, really. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I know it played a little bit, I think. I feel like, I don't, I don't know, know if it, didn't, know play the, it didn't play the multiplexes, but I feel like it played maybe art houses or something. I could be misremembering that. But regardless, um, watch it with a group of people because it's a blast. Good and stuff. I, I just watched Innkeepers again couple days ago when i was doing my uh, horror list for shockwaves of the decade and hadn't seen that since the theaters and again also great pat's other one of my other favorite of his performances and those two films pair very nicely and a martin scorsese fave which is mm, cool mm. he's mentioned it as a movie he likes very much the oh, that's Keepers, really so. cool yeah i like that a lot um all right so i'm gonna continue with my sort of conventional but this movie i feel like still is gaining some steam but definitely didn't i saw it in the theater and i know it didn't do well in the theater and that's pop star never stop never stopping from 2016 what's up y'all got a hot new single coming and addresses some social issues that i think are being ignored so keep your eyes peeled for that we're going to be surprised releasing it next thursday at noon uh and that's it Discrimination, it ain't right. I'm not gay, but if I was, I would want equal rights. I'm not gay, but if I were, I would marry who I like. It's not fair, I'm not gay, that the government has a say. And who can love who not gay, or to which God you can pray on a gay. It gets me so angry on behalf of them. I feel passionate, not gay. So I pray for them, and I say for them, we need to make a change, not gay. I see it clear as day, this area is not great titties. We need equality, and for all to see that this is the new way. Not gay, it just seems not gay, wrong, not gay. That no one seems to care sports We can't continue to pretend There's not gay madness has to end Not gay I was born this way Straight You were born your way Gay I knew it was going to be on your list. I still haven't seen it, and I knew you've talked about it for it. I know you're a champion for it. I talk it up maybe too much, but it's really one that I've come back to probably like six times 
at least, uh, since it came out. And I just remember laughing my ass off in the theater. I went to see it by myself, and there was a small crowd, but I was just busting up. I mean, to say it's the, you know, modern day Spinal Tap is, I don't know, that's not quite right, because it's it's more about, I mean, you can say that. It definitely is kind of that. Uh, but I don't want to set people up for failure if they think it's going to be like that. I, to me, the more I watch it, the more I see it as that kind of a movie in terms of the longevity of it. But, I mean, the basic plot is that there's a group of guys, three guys, that made up this band called the Style Boys, which is very much a Beastie Boys type band. And one of them uh, spins off to do his own thing. Uh, his name's Connor and he becomes Connor for real. Um, and, uh, it's the lonely Island guys. So you've got Andy Samberg, uh, Jerma Ticcone and Akiva Schaefer. And so Andy Samberg is the one who spins off. And I just think it's a really funny indictment of, you know, well, pop stars for one, but just general social media narcissists and people that have risen to a place of fame where they're not being told no anymore and they're not getting any checks and balances. And I think that these guys have always been very funny in terms of their songs. And I know that their impetus for doing this was basically to make a movie to write songs for. And Connor's songs are so ridiculous that you can't help but laugh at them because he's just like this is a guy who's no clue no taste in terms of what's gauche to do what's politically incorrect while still trying to be politically correct it's just a hilarious thing and there's just a lot of funny stuff in it and they've got real artists coming in talking about the style boys and (laughs) it's very funny is it like cb4 at all in terms of style, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think a, I think I a little CB4. bit like <laughs> CB4 is great, and that's another one that's that's a cult item, and I think this one is destined for that kind of status. Straight but out I of would low say, cash. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's very much like you know. I mean, Walk Hard is you know taking off on the Johnny Cash movie, uh, Walk the Line, and I think that movie's hilarious too. And I, that's another one of these that could have. You know, I can't, and I think that came out pre twenty ten. But it, but it, you know, it's the kind of movie like that where I think it's really aping the thing very well, and I think this is doing it well too. I, I very much want to watch this with you. I think it, it, whenever you are, we're having another PCP movie night. We talk about this all the time. But I would, I will literally watch this movie anytime. Like it's become a favorite that I go back to a lot, and I, the songs are catchy despite being crass and ridiculous so it's a weird combination but i do think it's really great and there are definitely people that are also on board with this one but i want the fan base to grow and uh, i want more people to watch it you know i just think it's it's just ridiculously funny we need to do what uh, edgar wright did at the new bev that time But we need to do it where we program like it's like a weekend of films, but it's yeah. all the things you haven't seen that you've been meaning to watch that I recommend. And the yep. ones, you know, that, that'd be a good one. Or we'll just make I a show, an episode. We'll pick five each that the other person hadn't gotten around to yet. Because uh, I don't have many regrets usually when I catch up to them. So, yeah, uh, hopefully you'll dig this. I think that 
there's definitely parts of this where I'd be really surprised if you didn't bust out a little bit laughing. So well, my next one might surprise you. Um, All right, and, and it is very firmly on this list, and it is also on point because it also has a music component, the way your one did. Uh, this is not when you hear when you're used to my lists. This is the kind of thing you might not be used to me putting on, but this one could even be higher. It's at the number eight spot, and that is Sing Street. Who knows what this new prison will do for you? This is your time. You see, it's beautiful. How come you're not in school? I'm a model. Cool. Do you want to be in a video for my band? See, if you're in a band, sing me a song. Take on me. We need to form a band. What? Connor's putting a band together. Oh, good Jesus. You'd play every instrument on to my client. Probably. Show sure. about the girl, isn't it? What's this? work. Have school in the morning. This is school. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. Jesus, what are you all wearing? Yeah, we're just working that out. Uh, directed by John Carney. I love this movie so deeply, and this is the, probably the only film on my list that makes me feel deeply. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it is about it, but I, it, it almost works on the same level as the best John Hughes movies do for me. Uh, it might be the only film like that uh, that I've seen in the last, like, you know, 10, 15 years that really... Uh, I think um, Perks of Being Wallflower is also really, really good. Uh, but Sing Street just f- freaking floors me. I don't know what it is, and I showed it uh, I showed it to, you know, younger people who had never seen it before, a group of, you know, younger students, and it just total home run movie nice that's great yeah i think it's great so it's uh it's about a young boy growing up in dublin i've seen this one about five times and no wow yeah no it's surprisingly one of my most rewatched of them and not so much just me by myself but where i've watched it with other people and it just every time it hits all the same notes in the same way you know breakfast club or something does for me um uh, yeah young you know like a six 15 year old or whatever in dublin uh his parents are kind of going through the family's home is going through a bit of a tough time you get the feeling divorce is imminent and they can't afford to keep him at the school he's at so they send him to this like strict uh catholic school where he runs into all sorts of issues uh at that time and basically it's right when mtv is just starting to get played uh there his brother is this like stoner type dude who has zero ambition he's older than him um but he's just the best he's one of my favorite characters of this decade like it's so weird you know it's kind of like big lebowski just and it's jack rayner and the cool thing for people listening that this year is he is the boyfriend that a lot of people want bad things to happen to in midsummer um which is uh oh i didn't know that because i still haven't seen that movie (laughs) okay well you'll see what happens to him in midsummer but uh that's not really a spoiler it's the most meme creation of the year probably uh but he's fantastic he's such a good actor um and the main guy, his name's, I didn't even know his name, is Fridio Walsh-Pilo. It's his debut. He'd never been in something. Wow. And he's so the main, good. That's the main kid. Yeah. And wow, he's he is so really good. good. He, like, goes from being kind of meek, geeky guy, but with, like, this interesting confidence about him to, like, so basically, he's stuck in the school, and he's into music, but he's not, like, hardcore. And there's this girl who lives across the street from the school who's older than them, and not in school anymore. She's a bit of a model, uh, played by Lucy Boynton, who I just think is one of the most gorgeous women out there right now. She's in uh, my, one of my favorite horror films of the decade, Black Coat's Daughter. Um, and she, and he basically goes up to her and goes, I'm in a band, and you know, I'm going to make a song. You want to be in a music video? Of course, he's never... A, he's not in a band, and B, you know, he doesn't know how to make a music video. And and when the sequences, you know, he forms a band with these other nerds from the school, and they get good, 
and they're just awesome and they're really into, and, the, and the older brother you know gives them some cool you know records and stuff and lets them kind of like kind of kind of help mentor some obi-wan kenobis them a little bit um and then you know he tries to win the girl over and then puts her in these music videos and the part of the movie where this movie just to me hits all my sweet spots is where they start making these lo-fi music videos and it's just i don't know it's like kind of pure joy you know um yeah. and the way movies can only do this especially teen movies i think teen and when i say teen movies i don't mean movies for teens i mean about teens uh i think i did think edge of 17 was excellent as well um, me too that almost made me that's an honorable for me i agree i think woody harrelson in that is so good and his connection to her is so strong i love their rapport yeah but um you know this one this one means a lot to me I, I'm, I'm almost surprised uh you know it's always surprises me because my lists are usually you know more dark culty uh <laughs> and the rest will be but this one this one shines yeah I, i'm the other thing for me too and you may have mentioned it but the the songs are really good mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. very catchy and uh, you know that's that's you know from the makers of once it's not surprising that you get this kind of song craftsmanship um but like i said it's it's very neat that you would say this on the heels of pop star because like i s- said about that movie the songs are catchy pop confectiony things mm-hmm. and so i think that is a hard thing to do i think that's a hard thing to pull off is to make the music good and still you know make it part of the story in in such a way i don't know i just i like that movie a lot and that's another one this is great for me because uh, that had slipped out of my head also but i'm a big fan so i'm glad you're putting that on your list it's a wonderful movie good yeah stuff. no this one's good. and i mean perks of being well i'm not sure when that one's from i didn't look but that's another one that for me would be an honorable mention because if for no other reason it's... tom savini is the woodshop teacher oh i forgot about that that's great <laughs> and it's like it's it's like amazing when he pops into this movie and you're like what tom savini uh that's which awesome. is you know you gotta love sex machine i always gotta love sex machine <laughs> um well, my number eight is uh, another comedy, and it is a cult item, but another movie that I feel like got kind of stopped at the gate and didn't really get its proper release. I feel like it got leaked on torrents or something before it was actually done. I don't know, but uh, it's Tucker and Dale versus Evil mm. from 2010. I know what this is. What? This is a suicide pact. What? These kids are coming out here and they're killing themselves all over the woods. Oh my God, that makes so much sense. Holy shit. We have got to hide all of the sharp objects. You know what else, Tucker? Tucker! I think they're trying to kill her too. Yeah. Think about it, that's why they acted so funny after we saved her because they want her dead. Why? I don't know. I don't know. It's good that you don't know. It's good that I don't know because if we knew, then they would want to kill us too. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so what? What do we, what do we, um, we go to the police? Call the police. Yeah. Tell them what? Oh, I would we'll tell them what happened. Uh, it's a good idea, Dale. Oh, howdy ho, officer. We've had a doozy of a day. There we were minding our own business. Just doing some chores around the house when kids started killing themselves all over my property. Well, that's what happened, Tucker. He would have to be a moron to believe that, Dale. It doesn't matter what happened. What matters is what looks like what happened. And what looks like what happened is pretty nasty. I haven't heard you talk about that one much, I don't think. No, I haven't talked about it much. And I love that film. I do too. It's it's one that I've actually shown my son and got him into it. And then I think I'm... You know what? I don't think we talked about it, but we had a really lame screening night where he had some friends over and I, I talked him into showing it and it was clear that they were just not into it. Mm. These This particular group of kids. 
And uh, I felt like the creepy old dude who was laughing at, you know, people getting just completely <laughs> mauled and cut up and stuff. For people that don't know, it's it's a hilarious deconstruction of the uh, cabin in the woods, you know, deliverance sl- type slasher movie. Well, literally, have- and literally cabin in the woods. Like, I feel like that's yeah. a perfect pairing of the kind of comedy it's doing. Yep. Yeah. And so you have these two guys, Tucker and Dale. um, <laughs> And they are, you know, it's just all about perspective, too, because they are tr- they run into these group of college kids at a filling station and they make like a horrible impression. And you keep seeing things from their point of view. And these guys look really creepy. But essentially, they're just two sweetheart dudes who are going up to this cabin that they bought to fix it up and hang out. But they keep <laughs> putting themselves in these awful positions that makes them look like creepers and makes them look like killers. And um, then s- the kids start dying, mostly, in fact, all accidentally. And it's just, it's hilarious. It's hilarious how it progresses. And it's, I think it's one of the great comedies of the last decade. And it just hasn't gotten that boost that I think it should have gotten when it came out. I, I think it was either a festival darling or something happened. I can't remember, but um, yeah, like I feel like it got leaked on torrents and I, I heard people talking about seeing it, but it didn't get that, you know, theatrical release or whatever it needed. It's a magnet movie, uh, but boy, it's, it's really a delight. And um, Alan Tudyk and, Who's the other guy that that plays? Yeah, I don't recognize the other guy from other things. I mean, I know Tyler he's probably... Labine. Tyler yeah. Labine is his name. He's in some stuff now. I feel like he's in some TV stuff and whatnot these days. But the two of them together are just a wonderful duo, and they are just perfect. Um, so anyway, it's it's a really fun movie, and if you like Evil Dead and you like uh, slasher movies, I feel like it's hard. There are a lot of you know movies that would claim to be slasher comedies that aren't nearly as clever as this movie is. And I feel like it's very cleverly done. And every setup that you see from the point of view of the college kids is so well thought out in terms of how it's actually a totally innocent thing or an accident. And it's just well constructed in that way. And I love that about it, but I just laugh every time I see this movie. It's so much fun. Tucker and Dale versus evil. Yeah. And they saw it the first time and loved it and feel like, I think me and Rob have talked about it a few times, but it, it does get forgotten. Um, and the director has not made a follow up from memory. I think I was looking this up recently and I couldn't believe that because it just seemed like such a no brainer. Um, yeah. But yeah, okay, I'm glad that one... Well, I can pair it again, in a sense, because uh, we're talking about dark dark laughter. Uh, this is the movie... I've, I talked about it very early on in our show, um, show's history. This is the movie where I most was Max Cady in a theater. Like, I <laughs> was laughing in a way where I felt, like, almost bad. Um, and everyone in the theater was old. Everyone looked like they were over 70. And I'm sitting in this theater <laughs> dying. And that is Killer Joe. I need $6,000 or some guys are going to kill me. Better get out of town, quick. You ever hear of Joe Cooper? He's a cop, a detective, actually. Got a little business on the side. What you do? He kills people. Mom's got a $50,000 life insurance policy. Killer Joe's a professional. He'll do this right. This murder we're talking about. I ain't agreed to nothing. I heard y'all talking about killing Mama. I think it's a good idea. Well, there you go. My payment is $25,000 in cash. No exceptions. 
That's not our problem. What is your problem? We have a problem with the advance. No exceptions. Conversation is finished. Of course, we never discussed the possibility of a retainer. What do you mean? Hey, man, you talking about my sister? Is that who she is? Uh, directed by William Friedkin, 2011. Uh, it's based on a play by Tracy Letts, who also wrote the screenplay. He also wrote Bug with Friedkin, which is a total opposite of this. Like, they couldn't be more different. You know, Bug is very serious. Uh, this, I mean, this is as dark as it gets. This is like comedy where it's made black, pitch black comedy. Uh, and I just think it's one of the funniest films I've ever seen, weirdly enough. Um, so it's a great cast. It's got McConaughey. This is, to me, the start of the real McConaughey. Uh, <laughs> it's one that still, I think, is probably his best role, personally. Uh, Emile Hirsch, who's also excellent in it. Juno Temple, which was the first time I'd seen her. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church, who's hilarious. And then Gina Gershon. Uh, so it's basically uh, Emil Hirsch has all these kind of gambling debts and he's in trouble in the small te- Texas. It's very much a Texan movie. Uh, he's in he's in in the shit um, and he realizes he could get his mother's life. His mother sucks. You know, he hates his mom and Thomas Hayden Church is his dad. But, you know, a strained father who also hates his mom. And he's like, you know, if we if we kill her, we can get her insurance policy and it will and the insurance policy goes to my sister. My sister's like this kind of simpleton. Juno Temple plays this girl who seems, you know, simple-minded and they think they can take advantage of her um and so they just need to find someone to do it and so they there's this kind of corrupt cop uh who also they've heard is a killer uh called killer joe <laughs> played by mcconaughey and he's just the coolest motherfucker ever into a movie screen right when he comes into this movie you're like oh my god it really does feel like you know this great 70s kind of uh style to it uh and it's so cool because this is friedkin just like knocking out of the park late late in his career um and so he comes in and they can't afford his retainer, which is the problem. And so he says, well, what about her as the retainer? And he looks at Juno Temple. So he wants to have Juno Temple as his reta- their sister, uh, Emil Hirsch's sister as the retainer. And so there's like, you know, a, a kind of sleazy romance that then starts between them, uh, which is, you know, but it's all again, it's a noir. So it has a lot of funny twists and turns. And the real one of the real stars of the movie is uh, Caleb Deschanel, because he does this just incredible job to make this a very visual film, given that it was a play. It was stage bound before. And it never, when I watched this movie, that did not cross my mind once while I was watching this film. And I think he, it was the perfect DP to, you know, really make this a very cinematic movie. Um, and it's, and it's really tense. And it's got a couple of very, you know, uh, again, memed things over the years. Uh, something happens with Kentucky fried chicken, which has become kind of legendary because it's also very much in the quote marks, white trash. It's very much about all these kind of characters and traits and it's like kind of satire of that world I, I kind of remember when I first saw it I was like oh it's like the blue velvet but of the white trash kind of you know what I mean it was that kind of thing um you know very purposeful you know it's not me me saying that about it it's really is is about that kind of world uh and man it's funny I mean it's dark like that's what I mean you're laughing at something where you really shouldn't be laughing at it uh kind of in the way happiness uh, made me laugh uh, years years before, but this is also kind of a good thriller. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen this one, highly recommend. Which I still it. haven't seen it. <laughs> this would be one I'd want to like sit you down and watch with you because I do think well, it's totally. that good. You brought it up at least once on the show, and I put it on a list of you know Elric recommends movies that I want to see that would potentially fall into that episode that we were talking about doing. And just because we mostly focus on older films, I just haven't been watching as much new stuff that's not brand new 
Uh, and so I just haven't gotten to it yet, but it sounds like so up my alley. I can't wait to check it out. This would be actually a great double feature. Like if somebody's at home wanting like truly like a great night of movies, you watch this in Lone Star Oh, and it's like they're total opposite movies, but they're both kind of small town, Texas kind of vibes and both have McConaughey in totally different roles. I, I think actually mm. that would be a great double. Um, yeah, no, this is, you know, the funny thing though, like happiness, it's not, it's not like it's like happiness, but just that kind of dark humor is with the wrong person. This would be a terrible screening. Like if you watched it with like <laughs> your friend or your wife and they didn't tap into it, it would be awkward and not a fun experience. So it's definitely one you want to either see with a crowd or uh, somebody who already likes it. That's cool. Yeah, no, I could, I've definitely had those <laughs> screenings. Mm-hmm. So no, but that's been on my list since you mentioned it. It sounds, you know, like something I dig. Um, all right, my number seven is one that came up on the Carpenter episode, the first one, I think. I think it was in the first round that we did, and that's The Gray from 2011. Fox, you think there's more of them? Wolves? Maybe. Yeah, most likely. But we shouldn't be worrying about them right now. We should be worrying about finding for good. They're probably only passing through. Wait a minute. Passing through as opposed to what? Living here, hunting here. Wolves have a territorial range of about 300 miles and a kill range of 30. If we're close to their den and if we're within that radius, then they'll come after us. Well, how can we tell if we're close? We can't. They might have just been feeding. There's bodies everywhere. I threatened them, they attacked. What about the radius? I mean, if we're in that, what, they're gonna fight us? I thought wolves were scared of people. Not if we're near their den. They're not scared of anything then. That was it. Like, I was kind of hoping it would make yours because it's kind of like in my 11 or 12 spot. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like you. I think this is a major movie from this decade. Totally. And I remember all the buildup uh, when it came out of, I feel like, Fantastic Fest or something like that. And I was... Yeah, I was I was not sure how I was going to feel about it, but I paired it with the thing um, when we did the the uh, Carpenter episode, and I still think that's a fun pairing of two bleak snowbound movies. But yeah, this one, you know, with Liam Neeson, I think before he got into the whole Taken mm-hmm. trilogy, I think it's right before. Yeah, so it's part of like when he was sort of getting his little renaissance, but he's just fantastic as a very nearly suicidal um guy who hunts wolves for what it's like an oil yeah it's an oil rig, rig company in alaska or something. Yeah, yeah yeah so so he's just in charge of killing the wolves and this movie has one of the great plane crash sequences in a movie that i've ever seen mm-hmm. it's incredibly effective and then the aftermath of the crash and dealing with you know the death and and such and then the wolves i mean it's a fucking animal attacks movie really couched in a very bleak drama uh so of course i'm into it i love the idea of these fucking crazy super wolves that are in this movie that are you know obviously uh sort of escalated in terms of what they are but you know believable enough and you know once liam neeson sort of uh settles in as the guy who is the wolf expert it's what he does he's got a very specific set of skills in this movie (laughs) and it's dealing with these wolves and it's just an incredibly powerful movie you know it's it's fun in it's fun is not the right word exhilarating i think is the right word i was looking for in terms of the survivalist aspect of it and where it goes but it is incredibly impactful and well made and i think it's 
maybe Carnahan's best movie, although Narc is still pretty great. I think between the Narc movie and The Gray, he's done some really good work. I would love to see him do, you know, more along these lines. So I hope he continues to do that. But yeah, I rewatched it recently and still holds up, still great, you know, good supporting cast and whatnot too. So really powerful film. You know, I just really like the way it works. And there's some structural things he does with um, the uh, Liam Neeson character that I think are neat too. So And, and good, ca- really good cast. Yeah. Uh, like Dermot Mulroney plays like the kind of yep. support friend. He's really good. And kind of the guy who plays almost the antagonist is, um, what's his name, Frank? Um, Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo, who, you know, ended up becoming pretty big this decade in the sense of like, mm-hmm. you know, the Purge franchise. And he just kind of uh, Captain America, you know, he did a lot of stuff. I remember when I saw this, my number one note was a Frank, and not not a slight on Grillo by any means, but at the time I remember thinking of Michael Bean had been cast in that role i felt for something in me was like that could have been the greatest squaring off like saying about michael bean at that moment and yeah. versus liam neeson i just could see him in that world i don't know why it was michael bean in my head but uh but grill is still great it's 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 really a great movie like it's just one of the most yeah. interesting and i do think it's one of the best things neeson's done i really do it's I oh think, me too performance wise yeah for sure uh, well, great pick. I am so glad that one made it because that was like, uh, there's about two or three that where I'm like hoping that it will be on yours because it allowed me to fit in another movie. There's one in particular that I'm hoping still comes up. Um, my number six uh, is, this is one of my favorite two punches of the decade. And so it was very hard to decide which one to place. Uh, I was very close to placing Jeremy Solnier's Green Room, which I utterly love and was the most tense experience I had in the cinema that decade like nothing even came close like I was biting my freaking nails on my hand I was I felt it was that tense when I watched it but uh, I watched rewatched last night um, his first film oh no he made Murder Party first but his kind of first film that really put him on the main festival circuit which is Blue Ruin I apologize for the mystery he's going to be released it's an awful thing you did to them. So, you're like, in this. Yeah. Yeah. This is ugly, man. You know, made a huge. I started at AFI Fest at, at like midnight when it first, like probably its first screening, and it just completely connected with me. It's one of those movies where I was like, "Oh no, this is the next major director that I'm going to be falling in love with." Um, it's uh, the performance by you know equally great Macon Blair, who to me still it's surprising that he isn't hitting it huge. He's still big in the indie kind of crowd, but to me this guy you know should have been a mainstay by now um so it just opens with this guy who like has a huge beard is more or less homeless lives on the beach collects things from dumpsters uh sleeps in his car and looks totally lost uh and in a very early scene a cop pulls up and takes him into the station and says like yeah look i just want you to be in a safe place when i tell you the news shows him a newspaper article and and it says you know the guy who had killed you know this this man is getting released today and so basically you learn very quickly 
that he's a guy whose you know father had been murdered um, because he was sleeping with another guy's wife and the guy you know murdered him and he went to that guy's in, went to jail and obviously this character kind of just and and his mother died too but accidentally so she was in the car with the father so he basically lost his parents and clearly just went off the rails and he's like been living this kind of AWOL lifestyle but as soon as the moment the woman shows him that uh he decides that he will get revenge and he will take matters into his own hands and so it become and this is you know i think one of the opening scenes is he's just in a bathtub and then you start seeing a family come home and you realize it's not his house you're like oh shit <laughs> and he like quickly has to jump out the back window and you realize this That's is a how great he lives scene. oh it's such a good scene yeah. like what's so refreshing about the start of this movie um, that, that really came this was the first time i'd rewatched it since that first screening and i i almost liked it even more but it's like a good like it feels like a good 8 minutes of just visual storytelling where he really doesn't say anything you just watch his behavior you watch what he does you watch his routine and you're just so in immersed in his world um that it's impossible not to care inside with him uh and then it becomes this very it reminds me kind of hatfield mccoyish vibe because it's definitely there's a f- bit of a feud between these families because of what their fathers had done basically um but it's not it's not in that kind of setting of course it's a modern day setting um but you know at some point he goes to kind of warn his his sister you know that you know what 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 he's getting involved in and you know she's great played by amy hargreaves another great indie actress um and it just gets complicated and i don't want to spoil it because it's such a simple movie there isn't a lot of plot to it uh when it becomes you know these kind of characters start squaring off but it's so it's just so rewarding like emotionally i find it very rewarding and as an action or or kind of revenge-ish action thing it's also it kind of equally delivers so it it definitely is that um the perfect because i am also just a big revenge is definitely one of my favorite subgenres. as we kind of did an early episode on revenge and my my feeling is that quote where it's like if you're gonna you know set out on a quest of revenge make sure you bring two shovels it's perfectly summarized with this is the movie that best summarizes that thing where it's kind of like you're you're on an operation of doom when you try to do something like this um absolutely terrific movie but green room is utterly it's equal and it's so different that's why it's tough to decide but i i I do want to kind of go with the one that really uh, set him on course his netflix movie was a little too big and a little unwieldy for me um i've forgotten the name of that one the third thing he made this decade but it's still interesting and exciting there's no one i'm more excited about what they might do than uh solonier right now yeah no i like green room quite a bit too but i think blue ruin is my favorite of his films as well and it is a revenge movie that goes all the way Mm -hmm. and definitely makes you go oh you like revenge movies well this is the i don't want to say the reality but this is the one that takes you fully through that yeah uh in and it's a it's you know it's a downbeat movie it's a powerful movie a powerful meditation on revenge um but yeah what a performance by macon blair incredible just incredible uh, yeah, I love this movie. I, it's so powerful that I've only seen it. I think I've only seen it once, um, but I definitely loved it. And I, th- I think I give it, like I said, I give it the edge over Green Room, which is also great. Um, but there's something about him and how sympathetic he is that keeps me just, just slightly more in this movie than Green Room. Uh, there's, there's a couple characters in Green Room that I'm less interested in or less uh, drawn to. 
Uh, and I think that's what the heart of this movie is that holds me. And it's cool, though, that how different they are because Green Room is a, yeah. an exciting film. That's the thing. Like, Blue Ruin isn't about the excitement. It's about this kind of journey, and it feels very inevitable. Whereas Green Room is like this crazy, somehow it's like high, it's like the raid feeling or something, uh, yeah. high octane. Uh, and everyone's great in it. But yeah, it's it's less about loving the characters because they're all, you know, they're from a punk band. But the scene is so good in Green Room. That's that's the impressive thing about Green Room is it, it sets the scene of like what it's like to tour with a punk band. Uh, either of them are interchangeable on this list because I truly do love both of them. Um, but but yeah, I, I would recommend because I think Blue Ruin's definitely the lesser scene of the two right now. That's for sure. For sure. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, well, I was talking about Wes Anderson briefly before, and uh, I got to bring him into the list. Uh, I'm going to go Moonrise Kingdom for my number six spot. <clears throat> what kind of bird are you? I'm a sparrow. She's a dog. No, I said. What kind of bird are you? I'm a raven. Boys aren't allowed in here. I'll be leaving soon. What happened to your hand? I got hit in the mirror. Really? How did that happen? I lost my temper myself. What's your name? Sam, what's yours? I'm Susie. It's my favorite. I was torn between this and Grand Budapest Hotel, but I think this one is the one that ultimately I've come back. Can I blow your mind about saying what? Never have, seen it? No, no, no. I I love Moonrise. Like I'm like I've shown that to a lot of young people too, where I just think it's a utter you know like it's such a great little underrated film. I've never seen Grand Budapest. Oh, isn't that wow. crazy? Because it was the that year it was the year it was getting all the Oscars, and it like something about it just made me go ah. <laughs> yeah. I just never did I, well, it, which is crazy. Here's the thing. I I could see you, I may be overhyping this, but I could see you seeing it and going, that's my favorite Wes Anderson mm, film. Mm. You, you in particular. Interesting, because Tenenbaums I is be my wrong. favorite. I mean, I'm a huge Tenenbaums fan. Well, that being said, maybe I'm wrong, but I still think it's one that you'll very much enjoy. And, and I was really torn whether to include, like you in terms of Green Room and Blue Ruin, mm-hmm. I was on the fence about Grand Budapest or Moonrise. But I think Moonrise is, the for me, the sweeter film. It's got a sort of coming-of-age element to it that I love, and I really love the main performances by uh, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward. I think the two of them are fantastic together. Isn't he like a real cinephile now? I think he's got like a Twitter where he's always like talking about movies, and I'm pretty sure he is, like the teen kid in it. Yeah, he is. In fact, he's been, Jared Gilman has been on Zebras in America. I think he may have been on Zebras or Wrong Reel or something like that. Anyway, yeah, he's a total cinephile guy and um, totally into movies. And I think it's really cool that he's that guy. Um, So that's neat. And I don't know, that may or may not have been something that was part of him before. Yeah, he might have picked it up from Wes. I mean, it has a Badlands vibe in the middle to that movie. Yeah. You know, it's like kids doing Badlands, which I love. Yeah, but it's still like very sweet all Mm -hmm. the way through. The clip I use as a clip, I guess, was relatively popular. But there's something about the idea of when Jared Gilman goes to see her uh, when she's in the play and he sneaks into the girl's dressing room and he's like, what kind of bird are you? And this girl starts answering and he's like, no, no, no. I said, what kind of bird are you? And he's talking directly to Susie. Mm -hmm. And I just love that idea of two people zeroing in on each other 
uh, and having a moment that's like, no, this is about me and you, not these, fuck these other people. And Funny I think that you that... would pick that moment because I taught the other girl. So the girl oh, who, is, really? who is not the one was, I taught her for like three years when she was little. Oh, that's hilarious. I know. And, and she, I didn't know for the long time she was an actress and then she told me she was and she told me which film and then she showed me that clip and I was like, oh my God, I love that movie. And then we watched the whole yeah. film. <laughs> so no, I mean, everybody else is good in that scene, but I just love the idea of two people zeroing in each other uh, and, and making that connection and it being a lasting thing. And then them sort of running off, like you say, kind of like a, you know, Kitty Badlands, ultimately. I hadn't yeah. thought about that, but that's great. But yeah, it's just, it's a, you know, twee sort of Wes Anderson movie. It's what he does. and But it also has the parents as well. So that, that stuff is yeah. twee, but then it cuts to people like Bruce Willis, you know, and Francis <laughs> yeah. McDormand. There's like these divorced, sad characters yeah. that are going through shit. And I, I really like that. I mean, this is one of my favorite of his films, but it's the one it's very easy to forget about. You know, yeah. there's something about it. It's like light as a feather or something. Yeah, some, something I agree that maybe it's not as I remember it was a big deal when it came out it was like the new one but it hasn't I feel like gotten that support like something like Royal Tenenbaums or whatever and it, to me it's like in terms of the latter career stuff it's probably my favorite uh, you know I love the animated stuff too don't get me wrong but but yeah I just I've come back to it a lot I think it opens really neat when, when he does that bit with the I think it's Benjamin Bratton uh, record where he's talking about all the different musical instruments and they plays it's different solos of different um, parts of the orchestra. It's just a really neat opening uh, to the movie and the music is really good. Anyway, it's, it's probably my favorite recent one and uh, I had to include it. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, I'm glad you did. That's a really good film. Uh, that would have been perfect to have gone right when I did Sing Street because I feel like those two are ones yep. I think of together in my brain. Um, okay, I'm going to do a Brian Sauer. I'm going to cheat <laughs> and do a double feature here just to okay. be, which I believe you've done a couple times in our in our podcasting uh, best have. of, and I don't think I've ever done it. So this is my first time, on, or at least on an end of year type thing. Uh, but this one's perfect, and you'll see why. So for my number five, I wanted to put these two films together because I don't see the point of picking one of them. And they are something about them where if I if I believe there's a cut of these two films that cut together, make the greatest movie ever made. And that is Tree of Life and Enter the Void. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. total opposite visions of the exact same thing basically uh tree of life is from uh 2011 by malik obviously working on it for a long time and enter the void is from 2010 technically on imdb it says 2009 but it is that's just its con release it wasn't out in america till 2010 uh these films i had never thought about this until making this list and i literally had these films around my 10 spot by themselves and as you've probably heard me talk about this and I, you know, it's, I, I, I should be careful because I do, I truly do think tree of life is like a masterpiece. I truly believe he achieved something pretty special with it. That will be looked at hundreds of years from now. It takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. Come on, hit me, hit me. Come on, son. He's afraid of you. You expect things that a mulling adult can accomplish. I've just always wanted you to be strong, be your own man. But 
I also think there's a lot of fat on it, and I think there's a lot of parts that uh, I, I feel some of the Sean Penn contemporary stuff that just isn't really needed, and I think it's strong, and the dinosaurs, you know, some of that isn't it. <laughs> but I think the stuff with Brad Pitt, outside of Once Upon a Time, I, I truly mean this, I think this might be Brad Pitt's other best role. I think he's mm. so good in this, which is because it's so against type. It is not what I think of. When I think of Brad Pitt, I think of more like Cliff. Uh, I think of somebody more at ease in his skin and kind of, you know, or fight club or something like that. But in this film, you know, he's this uptight father who doesn't know how to teach kids to be men. And I I've struggled with all the same shit. Like I think about this stuff all the time. Um, and it's, it's just truly beautiful, that stuff. And uh, Jessica Chastain as the mother and just the way it's shot. I th- truly think the stuff about childhood is some of the best I've ever seen. Um, but it's also both films are about looking forward into the future, looking back into the past and the cosmos. And so but they're just such different approaches, but they have so many similarities in ways. Uh, it's really fascinating. You know, Malik is like soft, like a like light as a feather and with this ephemeral touch. And then uh, Gaspar Noe is a sledgehammer, neon, you know, fast cutting and uh, Enter the Void comes across along and. This is a hard one to recommend people, but in a cinema, this was definitely one of the best cinema movies I saw that decade where it was just like, oh, my God, the screen owned you and you felt the cuts. You felt so the entire film is uh, told from the character's POV. Uh, So it's basically this young guy. uh, If he's like a French guy, drug dealer, lives in Tokyo, makes a bad drug deal. And in the first few minutes of this film, he is killed. And once he's killed, you're in his POV the whole time. Once he's killed, the POV just starts drifting out of his body. And he had just read the uh, Book of the Dead. And so even though Gaspar Noe is not at all religious, his comment is like, well, I'm not religious. It's not about the Book of the Dead. It's about a guy who just read the Book of the Dead and was high as fuck on drugs. And what? And now his spirit's all kind of messed up on it, you know, kind of looming around. And it, then it starts cutting forward into the future, uh, cuts back into what their childhood was like and what the past. And there's just some, there's just certain edits in this movie. It's a hard one to recommend because I could totally get why somebody would think it's trash or wouldn't like it. But there's such a vision behind what the person is going for that I feel like putting these movies together, I, I can't explain it, but it feels totally right to me. It's it's one of the most right things I've done. <laughs> um, I still never seen Enter the Void. Uh, okay, I would I would like to see, but I couldn't watch that one on a TV at home with you. I think that's when we would have to wait till it's playing in a in a cinema because it's like two thirty. You know, it's an ask. Oof, but when, but it doesn't. It's so unique that in a movie theater, that's not going to be a problem it's just but at home because it's not really about character and some about development it's about kind of vision uh, vision uh but it just trust me when i say it's like this weird if if, if it's a coin you know heads is tree of life tails is enter the void and the thing starts <laughs> spin that coin and you they'll all start to blur together um but i do i do think they're both worthy and i mean if this was a best of just truly like technical accomplishment and what cinema is i would see both of these making sense there too um I do think there's a best cut out there that could be done of Tree of Life. But, you know, I don't think I've ever seen the longer version of that that he put out there. I did buy the Criterion recently, so maybe I'll I'll look. But again, I haven't really seen Tree of Life again. I, you know, that one theatrical experience left did leave, you know, a huge impression. But it's tough because, you know, in a decade, movies start to get, I don't want to say mocked, but, you know, the ephemeral quality that he goes for and touching touching wheat or voiceover that says you know mother i'm inside you that kind of stuff like it gets it becomes a bit of a trope or joke but people forget that the actual thing itself is a real you know pretty amazing return to what he you know had started 30 years earlier in a lot of ways yeah no i I definitely have an impression from seeing it in the theater and i haven't 
rewatched it fully since, so I need to ch- watch it again to get it an idea of what it still means to me, you know. So that is uh, my cheat tree avoid is my cheat tree avoid. Tree avoid will be my. So you you can't just take this. You have to watch them as a double if you're going to do it. Oh my god. Yep. You just have a day. Five hours right there. Um. All right. Well, my number five is uh you know PCP's favorite from last year, and it's Mandy. Mm-hmm. Black skulls. Look at me. For a while now, word's been coming down from the big rig, something dark and fearsome out there. No one knows where they come from. First, it was stories from the interstate, leaving truckers for dead, prostitutes vanishing, and gutted bodies on doorsteps, and always the same. Biker gang, black bikes, only seen at night weird shit. There's stories that there was a chapter that ran courier for a manufacturer of LSD. He took a disliking to them and cooked them up a special batch. And they have never been right in the head since. I seen them once from a distance. What you're hunting is rabid animals and you should go in knowing that your odds ain't that good and you will probably die. Don't be negative. Last I heard on the CV, they were spotted down near Spirit River. When I seen them things, they were in a world of pain. But you know what the freakiest part was? What's that? They fucking loved it. To me, you know, a story is kind of like the least interesting part about a film. It's how the story is told, not what the story itself is. So for me, the best stories, or at least the stories that I want to tell, are very simple. To me, a story is just a catalyst around which all these elements can be grown and explored. When I'm assembling a film, it's initially like a collage of moods and fears and inspirations that all have to be synthesized into something that feels new and fresh to me. But all these things have to resonate with me on a personal and emotional level. I think of each film as a kind of pop artifact, and every creative decision I make has that overarching concept behind it. It starts out as a straight-ahead revenge movie, but in the process of creating it, other genres make their presence known, and I give them voice started to want to exercise the sort of feeling of a fantasy world and so i just let that go i wanted to see horror elements come in because they felt natural to what i was writing so i just let those happen it was inspired by specifically all the stuff that i loved when i was a kid like fangoria heavy metal magazine heavy metal music cover art for horror films that i wasn't allowed to watch as a kid so you know you'd you'd look at these these outlandish Uh, paintings on the cover and read the strange synopses on the back and just your imagination would explode with possibility and and this film is, is an attempt to sort of recreate that 
had to include it. So glad, it's, so glad it's in there. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's impossible not to because it really is one that both of us loved, and I I still think it's an incredible second film, and I think you know Beyond the Black Rainbow is a really strong debut film for me uh, that left uh, also an indelible impression on me. But Mandy shows him stepping forward as a filmmaker into another level and I just think it's between the the Cage performance and the Linus Roach performance and just all the crazy shit that's mixed in Panos's head that comes out in this movie I just think he I don't know he's got some really cool touchstones and things that he's responding to you know in terms of what this movie comes from. I just think it's such a unique film in terms of the mix of stuff. And yet it's a very simple story of revenge. And, you know, it's all about what he brings to it, how he tells it. And I just think he is for me. And I think for you too, one of the most exciting filmmakers working right now. And a guy that I am first in line day one to see anything and everything that he does because I just think he's got such an incredibly unique vision. As cliched it is to talk about vision, I think he's a guy that really exemplifies it. And Cage being given this opportunity, really, it, it meant a lot to me because I love Nicolas Cage, like unabashedly, unironically. You know, I mean, um, you have had long discussions about doing whole Cage things, and we're just, yeah. I mean, he is, the to me, he is the best screen actor. Like, that, like yeah. when somebody asked me, like, he's the presence. I, now, it doesn't mean he's always good, because so much of the stuff he's been in is terrible, but he will give you everything he's got every single time. Absolutely, and I, I think he's still got it, and this is a movie that shows he's still got it. I think, you know, he gets because he's a working actor now and he just does a lot of movies and some of them of, you know, varying quality, uh, you tend to lose sight of the greatness that he has in him. But then you get something like this and you're reminded, oh yeah, he is one of the best. And he can be emotionally engaging as well as big and entertaining and crazy uh, and full cage, as we say. But yeah, this movie just has so much going for it stylistically and emotionally. Um, just rewatching the first half last night, you know, when he gets to the, basically the battle axe was mm-hmm. when I had to stop. I was a little tired, but, um, it's just so good. It's so well-made and, uh, I, I would say a, a sort of a PCP classic of the modern day, you know, it's just so our kind of movie. So definitely one of my favorites by one of our, uh, almost guests of our yes. show. <laughs> so close. <laughs> so but close. We will to... get him. Oh yeah. No, I know we'll happened. get him at some point. Uh, yeah. And also the other thing about Mandy that I think has stuck with me more than just the aesthetics, which are, because I feel like, um, I love beyond the black rainbow on an aesthetic level, but it doesn't have that other level, which is an emotional engagement level. It doesn't yeah. have that at all. Cause it's just not that kind of story. It's more cold and early Cronenberg or something whereas this movie it just mandy herself you care he somehow makes you care about her the way nick cage cares about her and sees the hope in that relationship and then you feel the loss when he loses that um and even more than the emotion of that it's the appearance on tv of night beast it's, <laughs> it's seeing night beast and all its glory like that's a nice touch we would not even i wouldn't know about night beast if it wasn't for it playing on the tv in this film and night beast <laughs> is one of my favorite things of this year so i have to thank him for that let alone um yeah no mandy is absolutely pcp approval all the way yeah good stuff 
Uh, great film. Uh, my number four is one of the, might be the only movie that appeared on both this list and my Shockwave's top uh, 10 of the decade horror films that we just recorded, uh, you know, about a week before this one probably airs. And that is one of my favorite in theaters experience of this decade. It was a, to me, maybe the most perfect midnight movie in terms of its design. It's 95 minutes. And that is Kill List. I like this car. Yeah, looks nice, but there's a dog on corners. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be sitting inside. It's a bit over the top for a meeting, isn't it? Do you know who's in there? Because I fucking don't. Uh, directed by Ben Wheatley, who is definitely one of those major filmmakers of this decade in terms of just you know making a lot of really different and interesting movies kill us is just one of my favorites i haven't seen it too many times but i saw this again at afi fest midnight one of probably its first screening in america and holy shit was i not ready for what i was watching i just you start watching this movie i hadn't heard much about it had never seen a ben wheatley film i think it's second his second film uh, and it's just this hitman movie with this English guy and his partner and they're just, you know, they screwed up some sort of hit earlier. They get hired for a new job. There's four people on this list, this kill list they're given. And it just starts to go from this very simple hitman genre and suddenly it starts getting weird. Like they go to this weird priest character and it's like, okay, was he a pedophile or something? That's the kind of vibe you're getting and he's about to kill him. But then the, then the priest is like, oh, I'm so honored to be killed by you. And then suddenly you're like, what? And it starts going almost Lovecraftian vibes, just in terms of the kind of dread tone you start feeling. Like it becomes goes from gangster kind of realist hitman to suddenly you're feeling this very uneasy sense of actual horror creeping in and then without ruining it and hopefully that doesn't ruin it i don't want to say but it's more it goes almost uh midsummer wicker man those kind of movies that are more paganist in their last acts which is not what you're expecting so you know i guess that that tells you a little bit about, about the tone but i won't kind of tell you where it lands it is to me I don't know. It's, it's it's definitely one of my favorite um, first viewings of any movie where I just didn't know what I was getting. Uh, I love that feeling. I love the feeling of somebody taking me on on a ride that I could not have predicted at any point. Uh, I also love the actor in the supporting role, Michael Smiley, who is in one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror, the White Bear episode, and he has he's popped up in quite a lot of things lately. Really good actor. I didn't recognize the lead, Neil, Mas- Neil Maskell. Um, isn't he in? Um, isn't Michael Smiley? in free fire he has oh yeah for sure yeah definitely yeah he's definitely in free fire yeah um he's probably appeared in most of his films but he's just funny as hell he's um yeah he's just you know one of those interesting uh british actors who's kind of getting a lot of work now after this one because he's kind of the mvp of this one um because the lead guy is pretty stoic and it makes sense as as the twists uh unravel in the film but uh yeah this movie i'm i'm such a fan of this film so i'm glad i'm glad to get it on two lists this year uh it's that good because i don't like to recycle you know because it's boring to just put you know, do the same kind of things that's why there's maybe a lack of some of my favorite horror will be on this but you can always go you know check that list out yeah no that's a good choice and it's a movie that i liked when i saw it i think the twist wasn't spoiled for me, but I think I was so ready to and sort of anticipate it that it didn't hit me as hard as I would have liked. But regardless, it's a really well-made film and, you know, a great showcase for Wheatley as a filmmaker. And he is another really strong voice working now. So good stuff. Yeah, I haven't seen um, Field in England yet. That's the one I saw Free Fire, um, the one with the sightseers sightseers and then he did uh, one that didn't really land for me the adaptation of jg ballard's um 
the one about the high tower high rise high rise i only saw that one really recently and it's like beautifully made but just didn't connect to me i didn't really get it you know what i mean and uh, it didn't for whatever reason Uh, but he strikes me as a talent who when he gets his hands on a big property he's going to do something so he'd be like you know if you got the way they got taika yet to do a marvel movie he would do something just totally unique with a with a a big property i think at some point for sure no that's i'd love to see him do something like that uh and speaking of which my number four is probably I'm torn because I like his films all pretty much a lot the same, but maybe my favorite's my favorite film from Edgar Wright, and that's mm-hmm. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World from 2010. You guys rock. Well, I knew I personally rocked, but I never suspected that we rocked as a unit. So thank you, Knives. I mean, you guys are going to be huge. Well, we're already pretty big, but yeah, I guess it'd be cool if cool people started wearing our T-shirt or whatever. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, excuse me. Do you have anything by the Clash at Demon Head? Have you tried the section marked the Clash at Demon Head? Thank you, Julie. Are you coming to my party Friday, or will you be busy babysitting? Thank you, Julie. You don't want to listen to her. And you definitely don't want to listen to them. Oh, I heard them so much. Yeah, I hearted them too until they signed to a major label and the lead singer turned into a total bitch and ruined my life forever, but... That's just me. Emily Adams is so cool. Do you read her blog? I'm uh, uh, sorry, you were saying about me? I mean, I've never gone out with anyone so talented. Go out with a lot of guys? No. Yeah, so, whatever, man. I've never even kissed a guy. Hey. Me neither. It's 2010 in my brain. That's so much earlier, just because. Yeah, I feel like we've lived in a that as a great cult movie. For it feels like we've lived in that world for a long time, where that's been an yeah. accepted midnight movie. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I love Shaun of the Dead. I think it's a great film, and Hot Fuzz is a blast. So those are really fun. But I think the one that I have watched the most is Scott Pilgrim, and it's a weird thing t- to me because the Michael Sarah character, the Scott Pilgrim character, is not particularly likable. He's kind of a douchebag, and I don't know what that says about me in terms of... I don't look at what he's doing and go, yes, I agree with that. But there's something about a character like that that I'm drawn to, this flawed character who is very problematic in a lot of ways. But also, I think, one of the most perfect Michael Sarah performances that exists. I think he is absolutely perfect for this role. Um, I'm not as familiar with the comic, um, so maybe it's not ideally what the comic wanted, but I feel like for this role, he is perfect as this kind of skeevy dude. Um, but it's just, you know, Edgar Wright doing what he does with full studio backing. And it was a shock to me that the movie did not succeed on the level that I thought it would. Uh, but he's clearly putting everything into it, you know, just in terms of his, all the ideas that he has, all the quick cutting stuff that he does, all the stylistic stuff, it's full Edgar Wright. And I really do love that energy, especially the editing and things that he brings to it. But there's all kinds of little bits, animation and little things that show up. Uh, you know, one of my favorite jokes in the movie is the P-Bar, which is just a stupid joke throwaway where Michael Cera goes to the bathroom and there's a little video game bar that shows him urinating. Anyway... Um, I just think it's a lot of fun, and the idea of him fighting all these uh, ex, 
lovers to this girl that he's into is silly but incredibly entertaining and I think it also just recalls a time when I was into video games which I'm not as much into now but you know the Street Fighter Tekken you know place is definitely when I was more into that stuff so it's nostalgic in that way Um, but down to even little things like him making the Universal logo theme music you know play as an 8-bit theme I think it's just a nice touch. And another movie also that, by the way, has good songs. You know, Scott Pilgrim's band uh, has music that they play that I really like. And the soundtrack is obviously really good because Edgar's really good with music. But the music that they play is also good. Um, So there's that. But great supporting cast and incredibly kinetic and fun. And I've just come back to it a ton. So it's just one that I can't stop watching, you know, for whatever reason. I'll put it on. Uh, and just sit there and, and enjoy it for, you know, sometimes not the full running time, but not because I lose interest, but just because it's an enjoyable film. But, you know, it's been sad to see that, that after this movie, he sort of had to go back to, well, obviously there was a, there was an instance with the Marvel thing where the Ant-Man scenario fell through, which, you know, I think ultimately will be for the better because it allows us to get Baby Driver, which I think is a really solid movie. And then his new one, which is whatever, like a Giallo or, or <laughs> something. Don't Look Now-ish. He's called out Don't Look Now as a reference. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to. So to see him sort of get this big studio money, stumble, and then have to go back to, you know, doing stuff on a slightly smaller scale, but very much his movies... Uh, I think is to his advantage. And I think it's to our advantage because we get some really fun Edgar Wright movies as opposed to him getting caught in the studio machine, which I don't know if that's a great fit anyway. Um, So anyway, I just love this movie and I keep coming back to it. That's all I can say. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this one. And I've only seen it the one time, but really liked it. I came to it way later. It was not when it first came out. I think when it started playing at midnight quite a lot. I believe the yeah. new Bev definitely played at midnight a couple times uh, or more. Um, yeah, and I know a lot of young people who really took to the style of it, which is cool. Yeah, it it's a great midnight movie. It's also a movie that reminds me of when I was in my 20s, my college age days, the, the apartments we lived in, the things we did you know, the girls we were into, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's just it's just a glorious little movie. Uh, nice. Uh, number three for me is probably the one I've seen the most, partially because I, I tend to use it for teaching, uh, and it just always works. Uh, and it's a film that is not widely accepted as a classic, and I think it should be. It is the lone English-language film of Park Chan-wook, and that is Stoker from 2013. Richard Stoker was taken from us by a cruel twist of fate. Pray for strength for Richard's wife and daughter. India, come and say hello to your Uncle Charlie. You look like my father. I don't know what you think you saw. Maybe we could talk about your living here with Charlie like this. People can just disappear on you. This could also easily have been my number one, to be honest. This is a film that fluctuates. I I have more and more respect for this film every time I see it. I've even seen on Twitter somebody calling it like 
his trash film at one point i read oh, that well, and that's I, ridiculous and i was like wow interesting it this is such a meticulously beautifully made film but it's also fucking awesome because it is basically a redux of shadow of a doubt by hitchcock yep it is literally uncle charlie so i actually uh subversively showed this to a class and then not long after i waited a couple weeks and then i showed shadow of a doubt and then asked them did that remind you of anything and it was really interesting to see how it didn't initially and then i started saying uncle charlie and then they're all like oh my god and it's like it was really fun to see see the wheels suddenly turn but um i love everything about the way this film's put together and it really does benefit from repeat viewing i think if somebody is i loved it from first time i remember back well way back when we were i was doing the killer pv version of our uh, horror show but um so it's uh, mia wazikowski you know is a uh, young you know she's turning 16 uh she every year gets the same pair of shoes for her birthday she's pretty very close with her father and her father has just died when this movie opens her mother's nicole kidman who i think it's one of the best nicole kidman performances post uh, eyes wide shut which is you know her her best um and uh their uncle comes to stay with them and her uncle she's never met in her entire life and it's because he was always traveling he was always traveling the world and uh had sent her all these postcards that she never actually got that were being kept from her and she doesn't understand why and there's a lot of sexual tension between matthew good plays the uncle and he's very debonair and suave uh perfect kind of hitchcockian uh, looking guy uh and there's also almost an intimation that he almost has a not telekinetic but like empathic power like he's almost able to talk to her in a way that she can hear and there's a real strong connection between them just like in shadow of a doubt uncle charlie has a very strong connection with his uh, niece which is just something i love about that that film and this is just one of those movies that it, it would because i do think there's going to be some people to still discover it i don't want to say exactly where it goes but uh it goes it's a very dark for one, it's a, you know, obviously a lot of Park Chan-wook's films are incredibly dark and a lot of people, there'd be a lot of, I you know, I actually still haven't seen Handmaiden, which is kind of shocking to me because I hear it's fantastic. And uh, I, it's sometimes I look forward to like holding back on, you know, one film by a master. Uh, but this is, to me, this is a really incredible style film because beyond the interesting story at the heart it has these like transitions that are just there's a part where nicole kidman is uh, having her hair brushed by her daughter and it just tracks down the hair and the hair invisibly becomes these long uh reeds in the grass and it's just one of the, the best transitions i've ever seen in any movie period and it's all designed like there's a great little video on the making of where it's just about the design of this movie and it's like all oh, the transitions are perfect in terms of their uh, production design in terms of the color dresses and costumes it's just one of those films that really had in the same way that you notice a hitchcock movie where every color has purpose and every you know everything has its place and i'm not always somebody always warms to that i like a little looseness to movies but this one i don't know and it's also very sexual and uh it's very charged but um yeah i can't recommend it enough matthew good who a lot of people probably know from um watchman the movie not the new tv show uh as ozymandias i believe um I, th- I think this would be one that if you want to take a punt on something, it's a thriller, it's, you know, psychological, and it's just gorgeous. And and it's a, I kind of wish Park Chan-wook would make an, you know, an, oh, well, I guess he made that miniseries for AMC that I didn't see, The Drummer Boy or the, God, what, what I can't remember. It was a spy kind of thing. And then he did the remake of uh, 
Oh no, that was Spike Lee. I'm sorry, never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, My he bad. did the of of the Park Chan-wook one. Yeah, yeah, I never yes, saw that exactly. actually. I don't think I'll ever Me watch neither. that. No, um, I'm not into it. But I do love the old boy. I think the original old boy is incredible too. But uh, yeah, no, this is this is one I can't say enough about. I it's I've seen it so many times, and each time I'm like, oh shit, look at this thing! Like, just so meticulous. Yeah, very cool that he, you know, his first English is a shadow of a doubt, you know, rip, which is great. Written by Wentworth Miller, you know, it's so bizarre. The the guy, he's the lead from Prison Break the lead actor oh, wow yeah it's just like he wrote this one script that was floating around and so i could imagine a very bad version <laughs> of the same script just the thriller like it could just be a total routine thriller made that goes straight to video very easily it, you know it's just the style of this director that really uh, elevates this movie cool um all right my number three is definitely my favorite debut of the last decade and that is joe cornish's attack the block from 2011 oh, nice there's bear creatures chasing us. Big alien gorilla wolf motherfuckers, I swear. Some creature fell from out of space and jumped Moses, so we bought it. And now it's prejudice have come down in force blood. Then Moses got shifted by the feds, and then things attacked the bully van and savaged the bluefoot, so we jacked the van. We're running for our lives now, cuz. Believe. Jack a bully van. Crash it into my whip. Then chat shit about aliens to me. This is making me nervous, blood. That boy stole cough, you know. Police are going to be all over this. Trying to snake me. You want to bring arms to me now? You want to merc me? You want a war with me? Listen to me, cuz. I'm not even lying. If we was making it up, don't you think we'd make up something a bit better than aliens? Say that word one more time. I told you, buff. On the roof if you don't believe me. What? What's on the roof? One of them... Say it. One of them big gorilla wolf motherfuckers! Yo, hi has There is something there, buff. Yo. Go see what that is. No way, buff. Me! And then the other most important influence on Attack the Block is um, John Carpenter and Assault on Precinct 13 in particular, Escape from New York and The Thing, and, and, and Halloween, weirdly. Mm. Just because he's, again, he's, he's like a consummate, high-concept, low-budget filmmaker. He, he comes up with an idea that's an amazing kind of one-liner, just a situation that has a very simple setup that then is like a clockwork toy, you just wind it up and let it go kind of thing. But what's interesting about John Carpenter, and Walter Hill has this as well, who I know you love too, but yes, John Carpenter, they don't have the budgets, but he has the, the big ideas and, and also kind of quite grand shooting style on a low budget, like Assault and Precinct 13 and Halloween, they're shot in 235, they're extremely low budget, but they're shot in like uh, scope. Mm. And, um, you know, they have kind of really cinematic, they have kind of big canvas compositions on a small budget. Mm. And the thing that's really interesting about Assault on Precinct 13 is how well constructed it is and how well composed. And also he has the confidence in in his setups. Yeah, it's just, I rewatched this one again and it was funny because we showed it to Raven when she was way too young. You know, she may have been like four or something ridiculous. Like we just wanted to watch it and she was into it and then it gets a little scary and whatnot and it could have fucked her up at some point. But I hadn't shown it to her since then and I rewatched it this weekend with her and she fucking loved it. She flipped 
flipped to the point where she was like standing up watching it so excited and so into it and you know she she's her dad's kid in that she likes a good animal attack movie and again this has got that this has got the gorilla wolf motherfuckers as they call them in this movie and um it's such a great you know sort of concoction of john carpenter and spielberg and goonies you know like just 80s stuff there and it's just really neat in terms of all the stuff that he brings together uh, to make this wonderful film about an alien invasion uh, on a less than great block in the UK in terms of the, um, the, the, the building that, that in particular that is the focus of it is not a particularly well-maintained building to say <laughs> the least. Yeah. And, the, and we open with our, our heroes robbing somebody. So it's a really tricky opening um, in terms of setting them up. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously the movie that gets, uh, gets what's his name? Um, John, uh, John uh, Boyega. Yeah, Boyega, yeah. Gets Boyega into the Star Wars films. You know, we're recording this on the eve or basically the opening of the last uh, what one, is it? Yeah. Rise of Skywalker. Um, and, you know, he's not in that movie if this movie doesn't happen. You know, th- th- this is the movie that gets him all the attention, rightfully so, because he's fantastic at this movie. Almost to the point where I'm like, I can't even believe it's the same guy playing that character in those movies. But yeah, it's a great group of kids that they get together, and they're just out to get these um, these alien invaders, these these crazy furry apes with glowing teeth that are uh, killing people. And it, they're great monsters. It's a great monster movie, but it does have that Carpenter vibe and that sort of retro 80s vibe. And it's just so... F- like funny and well put together and well paced. Um, I just really love it. It's legit at my number three spot because it is one of my favorite films in the last 10 years. And every time I come back to it, I'm always like, yep, still fucking great. So um, hats off. And by the way, slight spoiler, if we, if, and when we do a favorites of this year, I really liked the kid who would be King Joe Cornish's follow up to that movie it's not attack the block good or anything but i think it's a really well-made film with a similar kind of kitchen sink throwing everything in in terms of influence and making a really fun movie with a lot of neat little side details uh so you know cornish and i just heard maybe he's doing some kind of a tv show with Hmm. hbo or something like that maybe i don't know but anyway, I'm excited for anything and everything he does. And obviously he's connected to Edgar Wright and Edgar Wright's a producer on this movie. And it's, you know, not quite the same thing, but two kindred spirits clearly in terms of filmmaking. So, yeah, I've only seen the one time, but had a lot of fun with it. And yeah, definitely you were like, oh, cool. When's this guy, what's he going to make next? And then it took way too long to get to yep. the new one, which I haven't seen yet. So I'm going to, I, you've told me a few times to see it. So sounds like a good one with kids. Um, Okay, from my number two spot, we are going to take a wheel, a spinning wheel. I'm going to put uh, three films by Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm going to spin the wheel, and we'll just throw a fucking dart, because who gives a fuck which one it lands on? They're all fucking incredible. Uh, I mean, seriously, if this was a best of list, he would have three films in the top ten, probably. One of them I don't feel necessarily confident in saying that about in terms of Inherent Vice yet, because I've only seen it the one time, and it was very recent, so it hasn't... and, And it is such a mysterious and, like, complex and, like, yeah, you know, wonderful. I, I really, really was taken with it, but it's. I think that one's going to take me a couple years of rewatches to fully get my mind around. Um, but 
I don't know where I was going to land between the Phantom Thread, which it was definitely uh, you and both of our favorite film a couple years ago, and I still think is one of his best movies, uh, and The Master, which is uh, a more mysterious film. I am going to land on The Master for this. And the reason being, uh, very simply, uh, one of the worst things to happen this decade is that we lost Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I truly I truly think this decade, the two things I think we're going to most take away from this decade in a way is the loss of him and Heath Ledger. Because I, I think basically we're looking at two of the defining actors of that decade and the decade, you know, and the, a little bit of the time before uh, who, who would have just gone on to have careers that would have gone on forever. They would have had careers into their, you know, until they decided to stop acting. They're that talented. And I, I think this is one of the best performances Philip Seymour Hoffman gave. And I think this film, whilst I like it less than Phantom Thread, it's not really about the liking. It's more about like the vision and this movie it's just it's kind of baffling and mysterious and it's kind of about Scientology, but also about America and it's follow it's his follow up to, you know, well, pretty close to follow up to what I think is one of the best films of the 20th century, which is There Will Be Blood. Uh, and it's just there's so much about it that I, I find mesmerizing. Um, I think Amy Adams gives also one of her best performances. In, and then Joaquin gives a performance that's almost too good that I stop seeing it as a performance and I'm just a little unnerved by watching him and uncomfortable because he's a really damaged uh, vet who's returned home. And so, you know, it's, it's also a good PTSD uh, kind of film, but he's, he is, this guy's come back and he's really messed up and he's drinking engine fluid and, you know, whatever he can to get messed up. And he comes across this charismatic leader in Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is basically a cult, uh, but in the in, in the guise of therapy and healing and, and very much in the Scientology mold. Uh, it's in the, what, the 60s or the 50s? It would be, the I guess, the 50s, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I've, I haven't seen it very many times. I've been actually really in the mood recently to rewatch it because it's a lot of movie. <laughs> it's a long movie. But there's just certain sequences about it that I remember, and a lot of them have Philip Seymour Hoffman in them. Where and there's a scene where they're doing the test that they do this very roundabout question and answer thing between him and uh, Joaquin. That I remember when that scene ended, I was like, "There won't be a better scene this decade between two actors." Like that was the scene. Whether you like the movie or not, what they were doing in that sequence, it was just like complete electricity uh, between two people. Are you ready? Yes. Say your name. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Might as well say it one more time just to make sure you know who you are. Freddie Quill. Are you thoughtless in your remarks? I usually put some thought into them. Do you linger at bus stations for pleasure? <laughs> no. Do you get muscle spasms for no reason? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures in life bother you? No. Is your life a struggle? No. Do you like to be told what to do? No. Is your behavior erratic? No. Do you find interest in other people? Not really. Do you find it easy to be fair? 
Yes. Are you often consumed by envy? No, about what? Are you often consumed by envy? You mean like jealousy? Like jealousy. Oh, well, yeah, I don't like someone else's hands on my girls. I don't like to think about that. It makes me sick. Are you scientific in your thought? Yes. Are you concerned with the impression you make? Mm. I don't understand. Yes, you do. Well, most people are asses, if that's what you mean. And so I, that's why I've gone with the master. But it's hard because, you know, uh, I, you know, very similar to uh, Tarantino, the, you have a couple of these directors operating at this really high level this decade where they could easily have three to four movies on a list like this. And it's it's kind of bonkers. And especially given how different they are. The master is very different than Phantom Thread, which is the and both of them are the complete opposite of inherent vice. Uh, so. Yeah, serious props to uh, PTA on this one. And um, yeah, I'm going to go with The Master because I, I do think it's a film we'll be studying for a very long time and thinking about. I think that's a good choice. And PTA is going to come up again on this list. I had, so, hoped, you know, I had hoped so. Yes. Um, all right, so my number two is uh, one of my favorite comedies, but also a really great detective noir i don't know it's just great shane black and that's the nice guys from 2016 yes yes so glad it made the list so two days in advance four hundred dollars plus whatever the old lady's giving you old lady fuck you old lady you broke my arm i quit remember so call her up get back on the case get paid twice wow that is very telling I'm a detective and we have a code. We don't do that, but interesting. Good to know. Okay. Good to know. You were looking for Amelia, right? Yes and no. Excuse me. My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. What does that mean? (sighs) Last week, this old broad comes to me and she asked me to find her niece, Misty Mountains. Misty Mountains? The, The porno actress. The one that died. The young lady. The porno young lady. But yeah, she died in a crash. And then two days later, her aunt goes to her house to clean out the place. And lo and behold, alive and well, Misty Mountains, she sees her through the window. She sees her get in her car. She sees her drive away. Bullshit. Bullshit's right. She's dead, then she's alive. That's what I'm talking about. It's very fucking complicated. But I persevere. This is like my 11, 12 spot too, where I was like, this and the gray were the ones, well, Brian's got to mention them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, another one that I've come back to several times since 2016 and keeps getting funnier and is as clever a thing as Shane Black has ever done and has lots of great moments that are commenting on these kind of movies and yet totally functions as one of these kind of movies without pulling you out of it, at least as far as I'm concerned. And two just killer performances from Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. I think the two of them together are just... Oh, yeah. I, another movie that I just couldn't... When the trailers came out, I was so excited. I'm like, this movie's going to do great. And, you know, it, it just did not. It didn't connect. And I don't fully get why not. 
you know, personally, but I guess it just wasn't what people wanted at that time. I don't know, but, uh, Uh, it's, that one's baffling. I gotta say, like, there's some movies where you see it and go, okay, I guess like even kiss, kiss, bang, bang. It's awesome. But you're like, I guess I get why maybe it fell through the cracks, even though it's really good. But then with nice guys, you're like, wait a minute, Gosling at his peak, Russell Crowe's still a major bankable star at this moment. And it's and then you watch it, and this is why I didn't watch it so long because when it first came out, it wasn't getting good reviews. It wasn't until after I think you were raving about it. I remember being sick at home one day watching it and going, "That's one of the best comedies I've ever seen in my life." Like, how yep. is this not a movie that everyone's raving about? Yeah, it's ridiculous to me. I mean, obviously, it's a movie that's you know finding some legs on home video and VOD. People are you know now appreciating it, but I just I'm like, damn it, we needed this support when it came out so that Shane Black can make more movies like this. And we didn't get it. And so that means he goes back to whatever. I mean, he makes Predator, which I actually don't mind, but a lot of people hate. And I'm like, oh. And then, of course, that flops too, kind of. And I'm like, fuck, can we just get this guy some success? Because this is a a, a filmmaker that I want to continue to make films until he absolutely cannot do it anymore because he continues to write funny, interesting stuff every time out, you know? And anyway, I I just think it's glorious, and I would put it up against The Long Goodbye. I'd put it up against, you know, my favorite detective movies uh, ever. And I think it's going to be one that will be in the package with those 20 years from now. You'll go, yeah, "Yeah, I love, you know, anyway, uh, I think it's great. And And there's that sequence with Gosling where he thinks he's indestructible, where I think it's like... (laughs) It's like it, it's and and trust me, I do not throw this around. I'll throw around a lot of superlatives, but when I say it's almost Buster Keatonish, being yeah. my favorite artist in the history of anything, yeah, it, there's a moment where I was watching that dying, going wow, like he's just hitting all cylinders. It's like his face was made for that like passage of film, you know? Uh, yeah, no, that's a great movie, man. It's it's so fun. One for the fucking ages. Yeah, and it's again, it's movies are always baffling. What what connects, what doesn't? And Shane Black, besides you know stuff he's written, but as a director, it's he's had he has not had great luck with connecting to a big audience. So very cult in that sense. Yeah. Well, speaking of cult, we will end with my number one, which was um, I think anyone who pays attention to my interests probably won't be surprised by this. It's the film that had the most just. I don't know, just aesthetic impact on me. And I get that it won't be everyone's cup of tea, but this movie is, I have not been able to shake it. I don't think I ever will. And that is Under the Skin. So you the phone? Yes. You think I'm pretty? Well, I know, gorgeous. Come to me. Directed by Jonathan Glazer, 2013. Uh, this movie, I remember seeing the trailer and going, whoa, that looks like my jam. Like, And also it comes from this place of that, it, you know, it comes from a desire to make films. And the making films is like, I would look at something like this and go, yeah, this is about as close as it gets to what I would want to do. It's, a, it's got, on one hand, an aesthetic like 2001 
with one element of it and then which is very controlled and science fiction and uh, very precise and uh, you know beautiful and then then it's also super rough at other moments uh, it has hidden cameras in these trucks following the Scarlett Johansson character around picking up real men in Scotland like just under wearing this wig so it's a very strange mix but um but if you haven't I, I tried reading the book which was a cult novel I just couldn't get into it because it's so literal compared to what the movie is. The movie takes this and makes it very uh, kind of austere. But it's this mysterious young woman. She kind of lands on the planet in a way. She kind of just appears uh, and looks at this other woman who I assume she's kind of taking over her body in a sense or her identity. Uh, she's very attractive, uh, very comfortable in her skin in, in terms of nudity. She's for some reason in the coastal region of Scotland and she just goes around seducing men and uh when she seduces them it's in this uh stranger things <clears throat> ripped off the aesthetic of the kind of black the black liquid looking you know the place they go to in the upside down is a direct rip from this film um and she seduces these guys and kind of walks them to this pool of liquid and uh they kind of become compressed i guess and so if if you're if you're literal about what's happening i guess they're man-eating aliens or something but because he doesn't have any interest as a filmmaker in that you don't really know what they're doing and it's and such a good decision because otherwise it's going to be bad taste or something you know um it has this haunting score by mika levy that just is my favorite score of the decade bar not even close uh mika levy now to me is a major talent so every time uh she does a score for something i'm totally into it and it's just totally visionary it's in terms of just what you know you can do with visuals and uh filmmaking it's great that scarlett johansson stuck with it she probably largely is the reason it got made it had been around a script that had been around for a long time uh almost a decade and i love jonathan glade you know like i said sexy beast is one of my favorite films of the previous decade he's and then i love birth so he's only made three films so far uh he is in room i think it was just announced that he's gonna make a holocaust film that's all we know about it uh as his next thing but um very very famous in the music video world you know he's a very big deal uh as a visual stylist um and yeah this one i never get tired of it i don't watch it very often i watch bits of it i don't you know it's a very cold movie it's probably the most isolated i've ever felt watching any movie in the same way that 2001 does when this ended and i saw it in a mall i felt totally alone in the universe it was this very it's not the feeling you necessarily want but it's always incredible when a filmmaker can create it and um it just uh it's one i have never stopped thinking about because ultimately for those listening it's not it's not just about this man-eating alien it it's about the birth of empathy in a culture that can't feel empathy she has no ability to know what humans are like that's not her job she's here to just you know destroy them in that sense but something happens at a certain point where she starts like seeing humanity just briefly not on a starman way it's like the total opposite of starman in a lot of ways in terms of warmth but um but in a way that I still think is very interesting. And um, yeah, it's, I, I get when people hate this one or, or just disinterested in it because of its coldness. But I truly think there's, you know, there aren't many movies that get made like this. No, and I think it's one of the most interesting things that Scarlet's done 
and I hope she veers into this territory again, although she's been doing just the opposite, it seems like, recently, so that's too bad. But yeah, that the descent into blackness yeah. is a visual that I can conjure right now in my head, and yeah. I will never, ever forget it. And with it's that score, you unique. can see it with the yeah. score. You can hear that the weird... Truly unique. You know, the, um, and I remember when it came out, because I was the only person in the theater <laughs> when I saw it, uh, <laughs> in a multiplex where you're like... I mean, it was just cool that that was playing in a multiplex. I was like damn what is this movie playing um but i remember going looking it up and in that same in the theater next door uh scarlett johansson was in captain america it it, it was mind-blowing to think of this That's person funny. who was because she's like naked and it's all about sex in this movie and then in this next movie she's you know in a captain a fucking marvel disney property it, it just is it, it some some of these movie stars you gotta tip your hat to what they use their stardom for that's what impresses me i think some of them uh, are so great uh obviously robert pattinson is a major one good time didn't make my list but i am a huge good time fan and a huge fan of his performance in that but you know these guys these people who who go yeah i make these big movies but then when i'm not doing that i'm gonna help keep art the art of film alive by making sure good movies still get uh get made without them you couldn't make these things yeah i love that i love that we've got some stars doing that um all right so my number one it shouldn't be a surprise it is phantom thread from 2017 your mother have brown eyes green you look very much like her i don't know i think so do you have a photograph Yes. Do you let me see it? Not here, at home. Carry it with you. Always carry her with you. Where's yours? Your mother. She's here in the canvas. What do you mean? You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. Secrets. Coins. Words. Little messages. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. And over my breast, I have a lock of my mother's hair. To keep her close to me always. She was quite a remarkable woman. She taught me my trade. So I tried to never be without her. You must love her very much. I'm so glad that... Yeah, because I really couldn't decide. <laughs> when I, was I understand. And I, and I thought we would both have it on our list, honestly. I thought it would just be a double-up sort of scenario. But... Um, it's partially my favorite because, and I just realized this the other day, is my wife and I both love this film. And to be honest, she has good taste in movies and we connect about movies and we watch movies all the time. She is, you know, as much as she's less than interested in my podcasting, she is not lost an in interest in a good movie in all the years, you know, 13 plus years I've known her. She's always been into good cinema. But the stuff that I end up connecting to, let's say the nice guys, the comedy stuff, she doesn't always connect to as the same way. I mean, she sees it and she's like, no, it's pretty good, but she doesn't get blown away by that stuff. But this is one where we both totally connected to it. And I was so hoping that would be the case. But I realized that 
that connection is part of the reason I love it so much is we, when we both love something deeply, it, it tends to stick with me a little bit more. And it is one of the most romantic films I can think of in recent memory. It's just well, between... in, in real romance, not bullshit yeah. Hollywood romance. Oh yeah, no, no, no. And I think some people didn't get that straight away. It's obviously you know been connecting to people. It's definitely one of those films that people have caught onto where they didn't necessarily write when it first came out, but then like film Twitter and quote marks started to really kind of get it that it is this. That's what real romance is. It's oh, what is the connection between the two people? Just because you don't get it, or it seems dark, or or like ugly or strange the that doesn't matter what matters is how they make each other feel and if she does something for him that he gets off on and she's that's that's the important part because the, they're the ones who have to live together and i i think it's the best film i've ever seen about that that very specific yeah. quality of what a romance could be well yeah and that it's not just about falling for one person or one person sublimating another which the movie feels like it's going to do certain things like because it sets up at the very beginning he's basically dumping his current girlfriend and you know he deals with his sister and she clearly is in this mindset of like oh here we go again with this new girl and you know the way that it develops is just beautiful and the way that they butt heads i was saying to my wife like why on earth would i be drawn to a movie where the female character is so sassy in a lot of ways and my wife is very sassy in a lot of ways Mm. um and so but it totally clicked for me and connected all fell into place this is why i love this but the other thing about the movie is and i love the work that johnny greenwood has done prior to this i think you know there will be blood is fantastic but his score for this film is truly one of the most beautiful things i've heard in my life and i was watching it again today last night and just the flourish of it even before the movie's really getting going, when the women, the women that sew for him, that work in mm-hmm. his, you know, place, are coming into the building uh, at the beginning, and they're coming up the stairs, and there's this amazing flourish. so beautiful it's like somewhere between this is going to sound reductive but like mr rogers music and the most beautiful romantic mm. piano orchestral thing you've ever heard but this moment of them coming up the stairs and it's almost angelic it's like here come these women who are going to make these beautiful things they're going to make this beautiful dress these angels are coming you know and i feel like the movie's almost telling us that at the beginning and it's almost like the music hasn't even really kicked into the romance part and then that same music gets applied to the actual romance of the movie and there's also kind of a little dark some darker notes that come in and i feel like it's very it's perfectly fitting for the movie um truly one of my favorite scores in in recent memory and it really does so much to make the movie that much more romantic 
and the fact that we know for certain that The Passionate Friends, which is another movie we were turned on to because of this movie, is an influence on this film, this great David Lean movie about uh, another romance. Uh, it's really just this beautiful thing that PTA has done, and he is so confident in terms of the way that he sets up this character and the way that he conceived the movie, You know, writing it with Daniel Day-Lewis. I think that's a great collaboration that makes the movie better. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing and will be a favorite for me for a long time. I can just tell, you know, so gorgeous, the whole thing. My hope is it won't be the last uh, Daniel Day. I mean, it's a perfect final movie, but he's at the top of his peak. I would hate. uh, That's why Quentin will have to cast him in something to get him out of retirement, because, uh, you know, he's he's just such a good actor. It's like it's insane how he just disappears into some of these roles. And I think I personally think his best work has been with uh, PTA. I think between this and There Will Be Blood, they're just, you know, they're just incredibly and totally different performances, totally different styles, even. Yeah. Um, No, he's he's just outstanding. I think this is my personal favorite performance that he's ever given, but I could see you make a case for just about anything he's ever done. I think because I love the shining, it makes sense why I love there will be blood because it's that slightly over the top quality that's still grounded, but like it's bigger, but, but yeah, phantom thread it's, it's they so much is held back. And I, I definitely like phantom thread and I love phantom thread. I don't love the master, but the master is the one that I feel like I need to unlock more still. And so, so, totally, but I also just have to, yeah. I, I, for me, that was about getting Philip Seymour Hoffman on there too. I think another one of these actors who were just, you know, really just some of these guys. It's, you know, sometimes I sit around going, ah, oh, you know, it's sad that we don't have any more Gene Hackmans. But then there's yeah. there are so many other people, you know, who are who are really terrific. They're not Gene. They're different style than Gene Hackman. Um, but yeah, it's 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 always heartbreaking when we lose one, even when they retire. Um, yeah. But I'm with you. I'm, I'm glad you put that one on at the top because, you know, what a, what a decade. Yeah. So, yeah. So that is our 10. Um, we're going to maybe just throw some quickies out there, I guess. Just maybe a couple wrecks, maybe, or however you wanted to approach well, it. I'm going to run through. I've got a few here, but I'm going to lightning these. I'm going to go so right. fast through these just because I, I, I have several, but I don't want to spend much time yeah. on any of them. One that was so close to the list, and I just it broke my heart to leave it off. Is everybody wants some, the uh-huh. Richard Linklater? Yeah. I think that is a great follow up to uh, Days and Confused, and another movie that you know didn't really connect. Kind of got a few people excited, but didn't really connect. And I think very funny and very Linklater, good stuff. Uh, De Palma, the uh, yeah. documentary, I think is outstanding. That was on my honorable mentions as well. Like, it's hard to sometimes put a doc like that where it's almost yeah. like an extra feature, but it's such a good yeah. one that I agree. I, that and the Milius one were two of my favorites. Yep, for sure, both great. Yeah, and I wouldn't have expected Noah Baumbach to be the guy to make yeah. that move. Good point. You know, that's just anyway. Um, me and Earl and a Dying Girl almost mm. made my list. Uh, really great movie, ultimately, really well done. Uh, Grand Budapest, I mentioned also. Crimson Peak, I think, has oh. grown on me more and more each time I've watched it. I think it's become one of my favorite Guillermo films oh, over shit, the years. I got to rewatch it then. I've only seen it once in theaters. It's really it. grown on me. It's hmm. really grown on me. The more the mystery of it not being the thing, the more I've been able to just sit back and pay attention to the visual, and I just think it's sumptuous. It's gorgeous. Hmm. Um what we do in shadows, what we do in the shadows, really great. Another spinal tap with vampires, just a really great, f- hilarious comedy. I yep, think love it. one we'll be talking about for years. 
Uh, Mud, I think, is another mm-hmm. fantastic McConaughey performance. It's funny because uh, Take Shelter was in my 10 spot for a very long time. Oh. It was only at the end that I was like, put something else in there, but I, I, I regret it because I do think Michael Shannon's so freaking good in that film. He really is. Uh, another great performance is uh, Locke. I think that's mm-hmm, a really mm-hmm. incredible movie that pulls off something I wouldn't think I'd be able to. Just a guy driving, yeah. having phone conversations. Trying, incredible. To, trying to figure out the future of his entire life in one drive. Yeah. I think partially because we commute so much, it, yeah. it, it's that much yeah. more relatable. <laughs> right, because you do do it. You do multitask like that. You have like yeah. multiple things going on while you're in that And universe. sometimes an intense conversation yeah, in the car. that's true. Um, so that's great. Uh, Francis Ha, really great uh, Bombach film. Uh Hunt for the Wilder People. Mm-hmm. That's a Taika, incredible. Uh, it follows yeah. really good. Very, that was um, very. That was uh, well. Actually, this comes out after my Shockwaves. That was my number one on Shockwaves for the, oh, for nice. the decade. That was I, my number one. I would have thought that that for sure would yeah. be on the Black Rainbow. I already talked about Mandy, so that's something. Uh, the Beach Bum, actually, which will oh. definitely be on my favorites of the year. Okay. I think it I haven't seen one it yet. For, for me for the decade you liked it more than spring breakers or not i did definitely like it more oh, than spring breakers oh, wow. i think okay. it's his most accessible film uh-huh. uh and a great um conahay performance also. and before really, we really move good. on i forgot to mention this note about stoker harmony crin plays an art teacher in stoker <laughs> he's just i a, forgot about one, that too. one scene he's just teaching art i was like what harmony crin <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that's right. Um, Bridge of Spies, I've brought up on a Patreon episode. That This one just really sticks out for me. I, I, I think it's one of the better Spielberg movies, and it just holds up. Haven't done uh, it yet. Edge of Haven't 17, seen it. Edge of 17 we talked about, and uh, Premium Rush, I actually think, is a lot of fun. Oh, a movie that okay. people have totally forgotten yeah. about. Really great Michael, Michael Shannon, Shannon villain yeah. performance. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then Free Fire, I think, is yeah. is really strong. And when I brought up on an episode years ago, uh, I think it was ago, our last, end of year, right? It was an end maybe of it was year last last year or the year before. Uh, and then Knives Out, which I said I'm still marinating on, but yeah. I still think that's going to be one that's going to stick with me. So that's my honorable stuff for this decade. Yeah, it's funny if you'd seen my first three honorable mentions are Nice Guys, The Grand Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, awesome. So that so they were very close. So I'm glad you did them. Um, the, I'll just rush through a couple, and then there's one thing I want to talk about. Uh, Melancholia, the first uh, two thirds of that. I, I like the whole movie, but the first half of that is really an incredible movie. Very different than the second half. Uh, there's a a totally baffling, incredible um, foreign film that I saw called Post Tenebrae Lux that I saw in theaters at a film festival years ago by Carlos Regatas that never left me. It's kind of about, um, it's like two parallel stories being told. I don't know if I understood it, but I never forgot it. Uh, same could be said for uh, Lucille Hadzlhalovic, which I've never been able to say her name. She is the partner of Gaspar Noe and she made a couple a film that I love called Innocence but this decade she made a film called Evolution which is one of the strangest films I've ever seen in my life about young boys on this island that looks like Greece and their mothers and there's no fathers in the picture and then the boys end up being able to have children from their like through these operations it is so haunting and odd that I just it's on Netflix actually Highly recommend it if you're into something super weird. Uh, super Dark Times, you know, it's... Oh, oh good again, call. A, yeah, another film by friends, friends, you know, people I went to film school with, but it, it, usually that's not a pass. Usually that's the opposite. Usually it's more like, okay, what are they doing? And this one totally floored me. Um, 
uh, probably my one of my favorite cult movies in the making, Lost River by Ryan Gosling, gets yeah, no love. That's good stuff Look, too. if this was a best of lifts, Drive would make it. Like, I truly do think Drive's one of the best films of the decade. Uh, but I feel like Lost River is the one I'm more interested in. It's the one that it's it's just a strange film, and he really made had all these interesting influences on it, but no one gave a shit at all. Um, in terms of new voices, S. Craig Zoller. You know, we didn't put a single one on this. Oh yeah, but I know me and you were huge on Brawl. Uh, I put yep. um, I put uh, Bone Tomahawk on my horror list, and I I really like Dragged Across Concrete. It'll probably be in my best of the year list later. So I think he's a major voice uh, uh, to be kind of uh, thought about. Um, and so, well, you know, I wanted to mention that. But the, the one thing I wanted to highlight was just really quickly, I wanted to, I, I, I just noticed something that I thought was worth kind of mentioning uh, about The Old Guard. And I, I noticed five films I wanted to mention quickly that were by people that might be either their last film or close to it that were really great movies. Um, Road to Nowhere by Monty Hellman, uh, obviously relevant to you know the new Bev and uh, Quentin's career. Uh, this is from 2010, and it's about a young filmmaker trying to make his film, but also there's a, about a crime, and there's also a crime happening on the shoot itself. It's just a really complex, great movie that I'm a big fan of, um, and it'll very likely be his last movie. Uh, Cosmos by Andrzej Zulowski, uh, director of Possession. Uh, I was gonna hold off on ever watching this one because it's his last movie and there's something about it that makes me sad to think there'll never be another one uh, i watched it a few nights ago for the first time and uh because i was ho- holding out and it's a very strange movie man <laughs> it's got to be one of the weirder <laughs> movies i've ever seen uh and it's like a guy trying to write a novel on holiday and it's just all sorts of madness happens in the Zulaski way, but it has all the same energy that his earlier films have. So he hasn't lost a step and he was, he knew he was dying while he was making it. Um, and then, uh, the counselor, the director's cut by Ridley Scott, uh, ah. obviously not his last film, but, uh, you know, he's in his late seventies when he's making it. And this movie is one that I know when it first came out, the non director's cut kind of didn't, you know, kind of fart in the wind. Uh, Monty Hellman was the one who showed me the director's cut and showed me the difference between two scenes before we watched it. And I realized how big a difference this director's cut made. Uh, it was all the difference in the world. Like this director's cut probably should be in my 10, but I've only seen it the one time. I think I need to rewatch it before I can really appraise it. But it was, it was really strong crime film and very serious and, had uh, had some crazy stuff with Cameron Diaz and uh, Javier Bardem that is unforgettable um, and very sexual and odd, but uh, it's a very interesting movie. Um, uh, Bellatar uh, made his final film, The Turn, even though he's still alive, The Turn Horse, which I was at the screening at the AFI for this, and then you know, just kind of followed him out and he smoked a cigarette and I hung out with Bellatar. Uh, nice. This is a film called The Turn Horse uh, from 2011. And it's not my favorite of his films, but it's utterly perfectly made. And it felt like the last film by a director. Like this was what he wanted to make is about the way this horse is treated, kind of like um, uh, Bresson's O Hazard Balthazar in a way. And then the last one, which is a, probably the one that was most close to being in my top 10 and I just couldn't do it without a rewatch is Holy Motors by Leo Carax, who I think of as a young guy, but he's actually in his 70s. Uh, and it, and he hadn't made a film in quite a few years uh, before this one. I think it was almost 20. Um, and this thing is just wild. The, the, to the point where this could have been almost in the top three for me. 
had I gotten to rewatch. Um, and it's you know got an incredible performance by Dennis Denis Levant, who's been in all of Carex's films, playing this guy who's like an actor playing all these different roles in this. This like it can't tell if he's like a secret agent or what he is in this film. Um, and it's like no other movie I've seen. And the energy of this film is wild and funny, and it's like a comedy. Um, but it also the thing that really stuck with me I had a cameo by Edith Scob who is the actress from the original Eyes Without a Face playing a woman wearing the same kind of mask. So to me, that's one of my favorite movies. So it was, uh, you know, just one of those memorable things. But so those are five films by these directors who are either hanging it up or late late period masterpieces that I just wanted to mention because you won't get any in the 2020s of some of these people. Probably Ridley Scott, you'll get a couple more films. But um, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing when those chapters come to an end. And it's really cool when they make something that's actually still very much in line with their filmographies, which I really appreciate uh, when somebody's like 75 or 80 and still can bring that uh, same focus, I guess. Yeah. No, good stuff. Very cool. So, yeah, a little bit of old guard to end. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's a crazy decade. And hopefully we, you know, hopefully we highlighted a couple things that you're, you know, on the fence about. There's no greater feeling on our show than somebody writing. Uh, thank you, Andy Wolverton, who wrote to me today apologizing, saying, <laughs> oh, I really just couldn't believe that position would be good. And I resisted. And then I watched it. And you're right. There's nothing better than us, uh, <laughs> than us putting you onto a movie that you actually end up liking. So uh, there's nothing we enjoy more than you guys letting us know what you enjoyed and obviously once this post you know let us know the things that you love this wasn't uh, can't be a definitive list when you're only doing 10 each so uh you know there's so many other great movies that um should be recognized absolutely and uh as we said thank you again to our patreon supporters this is for you and because of you and uh if anybody else out there you know hasn't tried the patreon we only have basically two levels really um i guess there's a third but one dollar and five dollars and we have a lot of bonus content at the one dollar level but all of it available at the five dollar level and i think we have something like 60 episodes that are basically exclusive to patreon and we probably won't release that stuff uh at all ever there's definitely some stuff that's going to stay there and we've been doing it for years so if you sign up right now for five bucks you have access to a ton of us talking if you like us talking mm-hmm. uh, and then you know it's five dollars well spent you're coming in at the perfect time because there's so much stuff there but um, we really appreciate the support it keeps us going keeps the show going so uh, we just thought we'd do this little special episode as a tribute and uh, thank you to everybody that- yeah and it's the end it's the end of a decade and it's a decade at least from my perspective where I was talking about movies for the whole decade the entire decade I spent from basically 2010, I started doing this stuff, not just uh, with Pure Cinema and me and you, but with some horror shows. And so for me, that's pretty significant because up before that, I was just somebody who was obsessed by movies. So it's it's interesting to look back on, a, on 10 years or so of movies that you were paying attention, you know, hyper-focused on all this stuff being made and watching it in a different way. So uh, yeah, no, it's it, we're, we're having a good time. And uh, the end of this, uh, this year, we're excited for 2020, which sounds like science fiction man but uh <laughs> we're headed there very very quickly in a, in a couple weeks so uh yeah thank you patreon thank you new bev it's keeping this super fresh and exciting for us to keep doing happy holidays happy new year yeah and we'll see you in 2020 
Yeah, boss! 